Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Today is April 23rd, 2020. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, we'll be joined by Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada uh, as he gives us the latest on what's happening with the money that Congress will be passing to help small businesses. Will black folks get enough of that? What the hell is going on in China attacking Africans over coronavirus? Washington Post uh, editor Karen Atia uh, will join us to talk about what's going on there. Also, folks, we'll talk about the health disparities uh, that go back uh, decades uh, when it comes to uh, the United States. Also on today's show, Senator Mitch McConnell. He pretty much said, in the hell with these states, especially blue states. Y'all got funding problems? You can file for bankruptcy. Folks, we've got a jam-packed show for you. In addition to that, the second hour, uh, Black Women's Roundtable are going to have a 90-minute discussion of the power of black women, the vote, and the election. You don't want to miss that. A phenomenal line of guests. All of that coming up right now. It's time to bring the funk and roll the mark on the filter. Let's go.
right, folks, as of today, 876,156 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States and three territories. 49,648 49, deaths. Folks, we are just short of 50,000 deaths due to coronavirus. 85,000 85, people have recovered. Now, in his daily briefing, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said that although the curve continues to flatten, New York is not where they want to be. The hospitalization rate is down again, uh, so that is good news. The overall, if you project the curve, everybody's looking at curves nowadays. If you look at the curve, the curve continues to go down. And that's also in the uh, total hospitalization number. Bounces up and down a little bit, but it's clearly down. Number of intubations bounces a little bit, but it's also clearly down. The number of new COVID cases walking in the door or being diagnosed is relatively flat. That is not great news. We'd like to see that going down, but it's not going up either. Number of lives lost is still breathtakingly tragic, 438. Uh, that number is not coming down as fast as we would like to see that number come down. And what we're looking at at this point is, okay, we're on the downside of the, of the curve. The numbers are trending down. Do they continue to trend down or do they pop back up? If they continue to trend down, how fast is the decline and how low will the decline go? In other words, if 1,300 people or about that number keep walking in the door, then you're going to have a hospitalization rate proportionate with the number of people walking in the door. So we want to see the number of people walking in the door reduced, the number of new infections reduced, so we hit a low plateau, if you will. All right, folks, in that same, in that same news conference, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo was livid after he heard the remarks of, of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell actually said that for these states that are, frankly, Democratic or blue states with their funding problems, oh, they can just file for bankruptcy. Cuomo was not happy, and he lit into Mitch McConnell. Just go back to my self-proclaimed grim reaper, Senator McConnell, for another second. He represents the state of Kentucky, okay? When it comes to fairness, uh, New York State puts much more money into the federal pot than it takes out, okay? At the end of the year, we put in to that federal pot $116 billion more than we take out, okay? His state, the state of Kentucky, takes out $148 billion more than they put in, okay? So he's a federal legislator. He's distributing the federal pot of money. New York puts in more money to the federal pot than it takes out. His state takes out more than it puts in.
Senator McConnell, who's getting bailed out here? It's your state that is living on the money that we generate. Your state is getting bailed out, not my state. All right, folks, joining us right now is a Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada. Congressman, welcome back to Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you, Roland, for having me on. Appreciate it. So, so what do you make of these comments by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pretty much saying, you're in a blue state, screw you, file for bankruptcy? The comments by Mitch McConnell uh, are outrageous. They're irresponsible. And as a former state senator myself, uh, I know very well what these budgets mean to the essential services and the essential workers um, that are funded. Uh, Governor Cuomo is absolutely right. In fact, the Kentucky of the and uh, is ranked number 27 out of 50 states for the amount of funding that they got for this Paycheck Protection Program. My home state of Nevada is 43rd um, in, the, in the ranking of funding that our small businesses got. So uh, the, 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 the Senate Majority Leader is fine when it's money for his state. Uh, he falls over himself to help those special interests, but he's not willing to help the first responders, the heroes who are literally on the front lines providing essential services to each one of our constituents. We are in a pandemic, and that requires us to work together with our partners at the state and local level to make sure that our constituents are healthy and well and get the economic relief that they need right now. Continue to characterize this virus. So troubling uh, by this, what's so troubling by when you look at these comments from uh, McConnell, uh, as Cuomo said, wait a minute, states like New York and New Jersey and others, they are sending money. The scientists, not only in S&T, they're actually to the larger scientific and R&D community. They're actually sending money back to the federal government. And so he's like, you know what? I don't care about y'all. And the problem is he's just not hurting the governor there are constituents. There are American citizens in these states. They are not just the American people, the families, businesses, uh, workers who are being affected. It's just irresponsible. And look, if Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell doesn't want to lead, then my message is get out of the way and let us do our job. Uh, the House voted today to provide $484 billion of funding had it not been for the House Democrats and Mitch McConnell had gotten his way, they would have only provided additional money to small businesses. And look, they needed money to businesses, but we also need money for hospitals. We also were able to secure $25 billion for testing. There's one city in my district, uh, Roland, um, that 66% of the deaths in this city in North Las Vegas are African-Americans who have died from COVID-19. That's three times the percentage of the population. So I need these resources. I need them in my city. I need them uh, throughout every part of my state. And I'm working hard to make sure that we get that funding. So I'm calling on legislative leaders. I don't even think we should go home. I think Congress needs to stay in session. We need to pass the next round of funding Mitch McConnell, either get on board or get out of the way. 
Let's talk about money for small businesses. We just found today that Ruth Chris Steakhouse, they're sending the money back that they receive uh, from uh, the yes, that, that That's a huge deal there because what we have discovered uh, is that a lot of small businesses did not get the money they should have been getting. Also, you've got this, this company out of Texas, a Trump donor, who, who hires lobbyists. He ends up getting $53 million dollars for his hotel business, guess what? I know a lot of, I know most black businesses can't run out and hire two lobbying firms to make sure they get the most money from any other small business as a result of that money. What is Congress doing to ensure there's fairness in this system? Well, great question, uh, Roland, and it's one that a number of our businesses, black-owned, women-owned businesses have asked that very question. I want to commend Chairwoman Maxine Waters, the Congressional Black Caucus, for fighting hard. We were actually able to carve out $60 billion of new funding that will be dedicated uh, to community development finance institutions that work primarily with Black-owned, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. We also were able to get $30 billion carved out for community banks and credit unions, so that a, what we were hearing, and I heard directly from the business owners in my district, was they weren't being treated fairly by the big banks. In fact, one of the banks said you already had to have a loan with them in order to even apply for PPP, even though that was not one of the requirements in the legislation that we passed. So now this new funding— And that's what I'm that talking about. Aside, that, that's what I'm—yeah. That's what I'm talking about right there. Banks creating their own uh, uh, systems that block people out. So they're really helping businesses that already have small loans, small business loans with them. So Congress sets the rules, but the banks and, create their and, own rules? And, and they charge fees for these loans. I read a report that said that banks were going to make up to $10 billion in fees for administering the loans. Look, I don't have any problem with them making some portion of money for helping to get this money out. But the fact that they were creaming with certain businesses being eligible and leaving out the hardest hurt uh, businesses and those that needed it the most, uh, we take objection with. And that is why we call for congressional oversight. The fact that somebody can hire a lobbyist so that the president's Damn. friends can get somehow better treatment. The fact that Mitch McConnell's state is getting more money than states like Nevada we have an issue with that. I have small businesses that are being denied the ability to even apply for the funding because a portion of their revenue comes from gaming. We've been calling on the Trump administration to, to overrule that guidance so that these businesses have an equal shot and aren't being discriminated against uh, uh, so that they can get this funding as well. So you're right. These are the issues that we've been hearing from our business owners, uh, black business owners, women uh, business owners who are really the engines of our economy. And we have to make sure that a greater share of this funding gets to them with the, with the second round of funding that we approved today. All right. So uh, the money today, what's the oversight? That's the key, because as long as these banks can do what the hell they want to do and then it's after the fact, well, it doesn't matter because if all the money is gone for the second time after the fact, nothing, it doesn't matter. So we 
approved a congressional oversight uh, today of the, uh, the PPP program. And as you know, with Jim Clyburn is also overseeing a coronavirus birthday. Um, a committee as well, uh, based on all of the funds, not just this program, but all of the response funds. Um, but the but specifically um, the legislation today that we voted for requires the FDA and Treasury to report on the number of minority women veteran-owned businesses by size, by type of business, by region. We got a report last week. On, from the SBA, but it did not include demographic data. It only said the size of the business, not if it was uh, black-owned. So now with this new language in this bill, the SBA will be required to report out on that information, and we will hold them accountable to how uh, equitable those funds are actually dispersed. All right, Congressman Steve Horsford of Nevada. We certainly appreciate it, sir. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Roland. Have a good day. Stay safe. All right, then. Now, folks, I want to bring in uh, my panel. Joining me right now is uh, Dr. Greg Carr. He's chair, Department of Afro-American Studies, Howard University, Reese Colbert, Black Women Views, also Erica Savage-Wilson, of course, uh, with uh, Savage Podcast. All right, I, I just got to go right there. Greg, this is what we are seeing right now. We are seeing, first of all, I want to deal with uh, Mitch McConnell first. We're going to come back to the small business situation. When you, what Mitch McConnell is doing is exactly what Republicans did when they passed that tax cut. It was designed to take money from blue states to say, screw you, and we're going to send it to red states. The reason so many Republicans in California lost is because uh, of the money that was stripped from Californians as a result. This is what I keep trying to explain to people. The evil nature of Republicans in leadership, they don't give a damn. It's an election year, and Mitch McConnell's going to do whatever he can to screw states that do not support Donald Trump. Yes, he is. And uh, fortunately, the Crip Keeper is going to screw himself. Uh, the interview he gave with his fellow Crip Keeper, Hugh Hewitt, where he talked about these states as uh, states that needed their pension funds bailed out, was a direct shot against organized labor. Uh, we see in Wisconsin that this same hillbilly horde is getting ready to show up at the State House hey, tomorrow but... in Wisconsin. And at the same time, you have the Wisconsin Republican Party telling them, leave your Confederate flags, your Trump paraphernalia, and your guns at home. What does that mean? That means that Mitch McConnell, clearly one of the most reckless, feckless, and uh, unprincipled politicians in the history of America, is appealing to a dying shrinking base. And I loved when you put uh, uh, Governor Cuomo there because Cuomo spelled it out. This is a federal state in which New York pays more than it takes out and Kentucky is going to be harmed. Finally, I'll say this very quickly. In that same state of Wisconsin, where Hugh Hewitt has set up his little Crypt Keeper base for a number of years, and he was the one who interviewed McConnell on this, you've got uh, polling data that shows that in this recent election that the Republicans thought they were going to hurt the Democrats in, People in counties in Wisconsin who have higher rates of COVID-19 infection, even conservatives, were more likely to vote for the progressive candidates in this previous election. What Mitch McConnell is doing is ensuring he's going to go into political uh, crypt sooner rather than later, because his base may just desert him as they begin dying. Uh, bottom line here, Erica, what we're seeing is we are seeing uh, exactly how these folks operate, uh, and you're seeing 
also on the small business side where these folks are able to go out, get these lobbyists to ensure they get the most money. I mean, this guy in Dallas was bitching and moaning, okay? Oh, my God, how his business was just destroyed, yet him and his dad laid off 95% of their employees, but they took a $2 million dividend, and now they got $53 million from the federal government. I mean, this is the kind of crap people were warning uh, Democrats, saying you cannot allow it to happen because it should be a fair system and not who can run out and hire uh, Republican lobbyists to ensure they get money. Absolutely, Roland. And think about it. If in 2018, during the midterms, had the Democrats not won the House, this would not even be a conversation that we're having right now. So I'm going to borrow a term from the Reaganites and remix it a bit. Um, the welfare kings are really showing themselves. And that's what people need to see, that um, essentially what Ruth Chris did, and I know another um, big name uh, corporation that um, was shamed into giving the money back. So we have $30 million that went back into the SBA program um, because they received these um, large bailouts is really what the game has been all along. We're also seeing why it is so very important for people to be involved in politics at every level, because all of these individuals that have made that are making these decisions are elected officials um, on the piece around lobbyists, thinking about who has $50,000 extra to hire someone to have a really good conversation, hardly anyone. And so the oversight is the other piece that really needs to happen and hoping that the media mainstream media will not continue to allow the spin that Trump used in the impeachment hearings to say that it is indeed a witch hunt. It is not a witch hunt. You're talking about over $400 billion that's been allocated to ensure that during this public health crisis that there's PPE to make sure that those businesses and churches and all of those essential uh, folks that uh, really need money do, in fact, get that money. Uh, Reese. Uh, people better understand this is the game they play, uh, and Democrats have got to be just as ruthless in dealing with uh, these Senate Republicans. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. At the same time, the Senate Democrats only have so much to think they've been very effective in winning some key concessions from the Senate Republicans. But we've seen, I mean, what did Cuomo call him? The Grim Reaper? Moscow Mitch is another name for him. Mitch McConnell is completely corrupt. And for all of the emphasis that Republicans supposedly have on the economy, California has the fifth largest economy in the world. It's larger than the United Kingdom. New York has the 11th, I believe, or is it the 13th? Sorry, the 13th largest economy in the world, which is larger than Russia. So these blue states that Mitch McConnell wants to demonize and say, hey, go bankrupt, who gives a shit? These are the people that are, these are the states and the taxpayers that are powering the the government, the federal government and the, the, the world economy. So we cannot just be dismissive of that. And I think to your, to what you mentioned earlier, Roland, Republicans got wiped out in California because of, of dirty tricks like this, you know, repealing the salt deduction, knowing that it would disproportionately hurt people in blue states. And we have another election coming up and guess what? Even if by some miracle Trump survives, these Republicans are going to be wiped out by people like Mitch McConnell. Well, that's exactly the case there. And I think we played uh, just one of those sound bites uh, from Andrew Cuomo. I think we have a second one. Uh, why don't you go ahead and fire that one? Vicious is saying when Senator McConnell said, uh, this is a 
blue state bailout. What he's saying is if you look at the states that have coronavirus problems, they tend to be democratic states. New York, California, Michigan, Illinois, they are democratic states. So if you fund states that are suffering from the coronavirus, they're democratic states. Don't help New York state because it is a democratic state. How ugly a thought. I mean, just think of, just think of what he's saying. People died. 15,000 people died in New York. But they were predominantly Democrats. So why should we help them? I mean, for crying out loud, if there was ever a time you're going to put aside, for you to put aside your pettiness and your partisanship and this political lens that you see the world through, Democrat and Republican, and we help Republicans, but we don't help Democrats, that's not who we are. It's just not who we are as a people. I mean, if there's ever a time for humanity and decency, now is the time. And if there was ever a time to stop your political, obsessive political bias and anger, which is what it's morphed into, just a political anger, now is the time. And you want to politically divide this nation now? With all that's going on, how irresponsible and how reckless. I'm the governor of all New Yorkers. Democrat, Republican, Independent, I don't even care what your political party is. I represent you. And we are all there to support each other. This is not the time or the place or the situation to start your divisive politics. It is just not. And that's why, look, our rule has been very simple from day one. This is, there is no red and blue. There should have never been a red and blue when it comes to any important issue. Me. But certainly not now. Again, I mean, what, what, what you're seeing here, what we're seeing here, point blank, uh, Greg, is, is the kind of uh, cold, hardcore, cold politics uh, and I think people need to understand this is what you're voting for in November. This is what you're voting against in November. You're voting against folks who also are supporting voter suppression, people who don't want mail-in ballots to take place because, I don't, again, this is not, let me be real clear, I've never self-identified as a Republican. I've never self-identified as a Democrat. Uh, I look at issues. But this is right here why I said I will never be able uh, to support Republicans and the things that they do if they want to be unfair, if they want to be evil, if they want to be callous. And when you are doing these type of things, when you're screwing people out of their right to vote, you do not have a right to be in public office. And Democrats should be hitting this hard. And in fact, Greg, you've already heard McConnell even say he can't wait for May 4th for them to be, for them to be back in session to get back to confirming judges because he says leave no judge behind. He want, They're even going to older judges and asking them to retire so they can appoint 35 and 40 year old white men. That is what they're doing and uh, I applaud Senator McConnell because Senator McConnell is going to make it much more easier to uh, 
run the Mack truck of humanity over his racist, uh, soon to be, soon for us to be rid of behind. Um, it's another reason, uh, listening to Cuomo again, who has political challenges from his left in New York State, even. I mean, there are real political differences with Andrew Cuomo, but he has set some of that aside to say, I'm in charge of the state for everyone. And it's another reason I'm very much looking forward to the conversations you're going to have with Professor McBride, uh, who in his book about epidemics and black people raises the point that at certain moments in the history of a country, the welfare of one group is so deeply intertwined with the welfare of another group that the country has to decide whether they're going to hold on to their racism or they're going to hold on to their country. What Mitch McConnell is doing by pressing his feet to the floor on this, he's going to break white supremacy in this country. Because I don't have to like you to want for all of us to be healthy. And what we're seeing with the hillbilly in uh, Georgia, Brian Kemp, we're seeing the mayors step up. One of my students, I was on uh, one of my classes earlier, and she was circulating this piece on social media that said, here are, here are black teenagers in Atlanta said, Miss Keisha says stay indoors. I'm not listening to Brian Kemp. In Florida, you have an unemployment system that is so broken that that incompetent governor can't even get the benefits to the people who need them. What these people are going to realize is when you choose your whiteness over your life, you're going to die. And so I encourage Mitch McConnell to continue this because what he's going to see is that the response to this is going to ensure, as Reese said, that we can maybe finally put these white nationalists on the dustbin of history. It's going to happen sooner rather than later, and he knows it, which is why he's running as his clothes are on fire to the finish line, hoping he gets there because he, before he bursts into flame. But I think he might burst into flame before he gets to the finish line. <laughs> Folks, we talk about white supremacy, but we also talk, but look at what's happening to Africans in China. Uh, folks, if y'all have that video, roll that video where you are uh, to see exactly how, okay, all right, so here, do this here. I I'm going to roll the video from here. I'm going to talk over this video. Uh, and so uh, this is some video that's been uploaded uh, by folks on social media. Uh, and um, if you're seeing the video, hopefully uh, it's going through, where Africans, Africans are being beaten. The African Africans are being beaten, beaten in markets. In fact, the Chinese were uh, accosted a Nigerian diplomat uh, who was trying to go and rescue his people. Uh, this is the kind of thing that's happening uh, there uh, uh, in their country. And, and for some reason, and first of all, I'm trying to figure out why they beating Africans for something that did not start in Africa. Coronavirus uh, impacted, first I'll start there in the Wuhan market. In fact, uh, the McDonald's, the corporation had to apologize because at their McDonald's in one of the in one of the uh, restaurants in China, they posted a sign saying "No Africans Allowed." And when that sign hit social media, uh, McDonald's uh, actually apologized. Joining us right now is Karen Atia. She is with the Washington Post. Uh, Karen, uh, also Karen, y'all is the uh, uh, journalist of the year for the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, Karen, what's going on? Like, what's the deal? Why are Chinese attacking Africans over coronavirus? Right. Um, so, as we know, in the the province or, or the city where this happened in Guangzhou, there is a burgeoning population of Africans uh, who live there. And I think for people to sort of understand, like China and Africa, I mean, in the last um, 10 to 20 years, China has been really trying to make a lot of 
inroads into Africa, whether it's um, investing um, billions upon billions in uh, uh, infrastructure, airports, roads. Um, many Chinese are actually moving to the continent and vice versa. More and more Africans are also moving to, to China. Um, I think what we're seeing now uh, in terms of Chinese-African relations is this sort of pivot in some ways um, away from the West towards China that offers more uh, opportunities, more uh, foreign exchange opportunities for, for Africans. And so, but here what we're seeing um, is the fact that anti-Blackness is global, right? And if people remember, even um, with the uh, Ebola situation in 2014 to 2015, globally, this, uh, uh, this tendency to associate Africans and Black people with disease and poverty is something that I think is global. But what this is showing, I think, in, for Africans um, is that uh, there is no sort of paradise anywhere when it comes to, to anti-Blackness outside of the continent. And it's shocking um, in the sense that, just like you said, Roland, um, this did not start in Africa. If anything, foreigners were the ones that brought it to Africa. My father actually just returned from uh, Ghana. And um, there, many people are suspicious of foreigners, uh, are suspicious of white and, and Chinese. Africans, um, so far, despite uh, the doom and gloom predictions, have actually done a better job in containing the virus, more so than the Western and um, Asian counterparts. So it really is just pure, unadulterated racism and scapegoating. And it's really harmed um, Af uh, China's uh, reputation in the continent now, as you said, um, politicians uh, uh, calling ambassadors uh, from China to question them over this. One politician in one African country said, well, we should expel Chinese from there. But, uh, but I think, um, again, it just points to this, uh, this notion that um, Chinese uh, uh, awareness of, of race, of justice, of social justice has not matched with its political and economic um, might and objectives with the continent. Uh, I'm going to bring in my panel right now. Uh, Reese, uh, you have a question for uh, Karen. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting in terms of what's happening in the United States and the xenophobia in the United States. Is there any sort of, you know, correlation you can see in terms of perhaps people making that consideration as well in China towards people they perceive to be foreigners? Mm. Um, what's intriguing, I, mean, I just read, uh, I just read an article about how, um, I mean, as we know, China's uh, internet and, and social media networks are, are heavily censored, and um, that uh, sort of outward xenophobia and racism is actually not policed uh, very well at all on some of those networks like Weibo, and and so this. Uh, this sense that um, I think for, for a long time, you know, you'll hear uh, stories of, of Africans who have had um, a lot of problems um, in China uh, when it comes to uh, the awareness or, or, or sensitivities um, to, uh, to Black people, basically. Um, there was not too, too long ago, a few years ago, the, the ad that ran in China for a soap company that had a, a Black person 
um, in the opening scenes and the black person uses the soap and then comes out as a white Chinese person. And it was only after international global outcry that the, the ad was pulled. The, the awareness, the, the sensitivity is just uh, not there yet. And um, perhaps, you know, this, this outrage, this episode will go, uh, will perhaps lead to a situation where China knows that it, if it wants to do business with Africa, if it wants to uh, protect its um, international image, it needs to do better. Uh, Greg. Yes, I mean, it, it's really an honor. I'm glad to, uh, to uh, be here with you, uh, Karen. Um, let me ask you a question about the long-range future of the continent. And I know mm. you, of course, your folks, Ghanaian, I'm assuming by Atta. <laughs> we know the relationship between China and Africa has always been complicated. Ghana, for example, I think the Chinese built the University of Ghana, Legon. I mean, when Nkrumah was there and going forward. But I was very encouraged to hear you say that this attitude toward China may be shifting a little bit as China has basically moved into Africa wholesale. Do you see perhaps this moment finally breaking the logjam where continental Africans may not only look at China differently, but act a little differently as China has its designs to basically, in some ways, recolonize the continent? Mm. That's, a, that's a really, really interesting um, question. I mean, um, a lot of people are, are beginning to look at this, this issue, and I think uh, Howard French has written an excellent book um, called China's Second uh, Continent on this very issue. Um, the last travels that I had in, in Ghana and Nigeria um, was this, this sense that, hey, look, like, all right, the Chinese, maybe they're not as warm and, and friendly, but what they're doing is they're bringing us roads that our governments couldn't do. They're bringing us airports. Um, in fact, the last time I was in my grandmother's house in, in Ghana, I saw textbooks in Chinese. Um, and wow. so I think that we have, we're, we're seeing this, this shift and particularly as the West, as America, as Europe begin to turn inward, um, at least at the governmental level, uh, there are other options. As far as like how people um, look at the continent, uh, you see a lot of, of uh, cheap Chinese imports flooding markets, particularly I'm thinking of the textile market, um, Chinese counterfeit drugs that are unregulated, that are harming people in Africa. And there's this sense that there is um, an unwillingness or inability of governments to be able to regulate these products, these cheap and sometimes inferior and, and harmful products coming from China that are harming people. So I hope, you know, that this uh, really, not just for China, but I think for African governments, and obviously each government is different in how they deal with, um, with China, but that there's an increased realization that African governments need to rely on themselves, right? And to rely on homegrown African solutions for African problems um, type of, of approach, right? Because at the end of the day, China is going to look out for China. Chinese people are going to look out for the Chinese. Africa needs to think about its own long-term future. Uh, let's see here. Um, Reese, or, or is it Erica? Who, who's already, I think Reese already asked, right? Yeah, I did. So I'm going to go to Erica. Erica, go ahead. Sorry. Hi, Karen. Uh, so I, the last time I was in Ghana, I was amazed when I went to the township of Pone and saw how the Chinese had pretty much taken over the oil fields. Um, mm -hmm. 
So in thinking about and in seeing that and thinking about African-American businesses that have been impacted as well um, by a lot of what's happening by way of um, being evicted, not having business done because of this pandemic, are you seeing how different maybe African-American business leaders are responding to a lot of what's happening and are they lifting their voices? Right. Um, I think, uh, and in fact, um, Roland, I know you went to the, the year of return last year in Ghana. Um, I think I think one thing, I mean, with, with the coronavirus um, pandemic, that is a, a big shame, actually, is that um, for African-Americans, those in the diaspora, tourism and, and investment was starting to become more and more of a priority for, for governments, particularly in Ghana and Nigeria. Um, so I think that uh, in some ways the crisis could present a, an opportunity but right now, the way um, that African leaders, what the main um, challenge, I mean, not just public health challenge, that is, that is massive, but the main sort of economic challenge that African governments are going to be concerned about is actually debt relief. And uh, from China, from the West, and a number of governments are looking to try to get their debts from the IMF and the World Bank possibly forgiven. Um, but I do think that this is an opportunity for particularly um, anybody who cares about the continent. There are so many um, brands and so many uh, entrepreneurs on the continent that have are beginning to to flourish. And if we uh, we can't forget that many economies on the African continent are some of the fastest growing economies in the world, actually. So I think there is an opportunity for more conscious investment, buying a lot of these uh, retailers, I'm thinking of several in Ghana that are online. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the main, the main priority right now is obviously for these governments to keep people safe because we know that the healthcare systems would not be able to handle um, a full outbreak of the pandemic. But I would encourage people to look at um, women-led uh, uh, businesses, uh, partnerships, collectives to, to help them survive because they're going to be hit extremely hard. All right, Karen Atia. She's the Global Opinions Editor, The Washington Post, and the 2019 Journalist of the Year for the National Association of Black Journalists. Karen, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, Roland. All right, folks, uh, I was sitting here, uh, I was texting uh, while Karen was talking, uh, Dr. Ebony Hilton. Uh, she posted um, uh, on Twitter that she was just uh, hot with the lies taking place at this White House news conference right now. Uh, we're going to have her on tomorrow. But what's so crazy, uh, apparently this idiot Donald Trump has been talking, said something to the effect that uh, allowing the sunlight into your body, um, uh, y'all, let me just read it, y'all. <laughs> Uh, Abby Phillips, this is, yeah, Abby Phillips tweeted, wow, Trump just suggested getting rid of coronavirus by bringing light inside the body, either through the skin or in some other way, or using disinfectant. Is there a way you can do something like that by injection or some other way? Dr. Birch then comes up and goes, says that uh, sunlight as a treatment for coronavirus not as a treatment. This is, this, y'all, do y'all want to know why we don't take this idiot, this idiot live is because of that. Th th this is precisely why this man is so stupid. 
He says dumb stuff like that. In fact, Dr. Burks is actually at the podium right now. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, her live real quick. We're going to get our next guest ready. Uh, but she's probably trying to refute some stupid stuff. Well, actually, so, so she's already actually stopped talking. And I don't take this idiot live. In fact, no, no, just go ahead and go to the idiot. Go to the idiot. Looking forward to November, the election. Uh, given the risk that the flu and the coronavirus yeah, come back, a, there, 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 yeah, there could be a problem. Do you, do you think there is a risk that there'll be, um, there'll be some, some there'll be lack of well, agreement, lack of legitimacy for the results? In you a know very what? Close I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just can't, y'all. I, I can't. I can't abuse y'all and let y'all even look at Donald Trump. But bottom line is. What we're dealing with is just crazy people, uh, Greg. Just, cra I mean, it's, I can't imagine being a doctor. I can't imagine being a doctor and you have to stand up there with somebody who just makes stuff up. Just, just makes stuff up. And you got to sit there and go, okay, I can't embarrass this fool, so how can I go up and now respond after this? Well, I think... Uh... Clearly, whether it be Fauci, uh, you know, any of the doctors, they've made a choice. They think that by standing there and trying to, you know, no massage this message, not only from no uh, Trump, who is clearly deteriorating before our very eyes, not only mentally, but even physically, you can just see the weight on him, uh, but by another person who, in some ways, is, is even more of an apparent sociopath, and that is smiling Mike Pence, who, uh, who kind of punctuates his answers with this, well, you know, uh, you know, we're coming and everything. It, these are two kind of poles on a continuum of sociopath. But if you're a doctor, you've got to make a decision at some point. And I think we might end up seeing a, a direct confrontation on that White House podium for those who watch it. So another thing I would say is that while we're looking at this kind of distraction, and thank God you don't show it, Roland, um, as you said, McConnell's going to try to continue to pack the courts. They're going to try to undermine the census, and they're going to try to steal the election of 2020. So while they're letting this clown be a dissembling, Focus. deteriorating clown in public Focus. every day in his campaign mean? rallies, they are very clearly working to ensure Focus. they remain in power. And we cannot lose sight of that fact. <laughs> I mean, Reese, I got it. I got I'm showing video of this fool at the podium. Reese, I got to read. This is the quote. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute. And is there a way we can do something by an injection inside or almost a cleaning? It would be interesting to check that, that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. Freesie, this fool is saying, could we inject disinfectant inside of humans to stop coronavirus? Damn! But you know, Donald Trump, people said is what happens when a reality TV show host becomes president. This is what happens when an internet troll becomes president. You know, a person <laughs> who becomes an expert <laughs> off of reading caption. I mean, I saw the, I, I'm, I'm in that, you know how when you're talking to a troll, you have to try to trace back to where did this kind of originate? And I did see a story that talked about how sunlight is um it does kill coronavirus faster if you're in bright sunlight but that was no way suggesting that sunlight itself is a treatment there's a difference between a treatment for coronavirus and saying that coronavirus lasts so long under these conditions and so that's what donald trump does he's an internet troll he probably actually does 
get his information. We know he gets it from Fox News, but he also probably is surfing the internet, you know, all these crazy people on Breitbart or whatever else, and picking up whatever kind of conspiracy theories. He's a, he's a mean retweeter. He's a conspiracy theorist. He's completely unintelligent. He's belligerent. He's ignorant. He's a buffoon. And he's going to get people killed. Listen, the beaches are reopening in some places. I'm telling you, and this is primarily the white folks, because I think black folks have gotten the message. We have our little secret code on Twitter with the whole G, you know, all that kind of stuff. Don't go out there suntanning and get skin cancer trying to beat coronavirus by burning off your skin, because it's not going to work, no matter what Donald Trump says. Uh, Bob, Bob, you would be an absolute fool, Erica, uh, to listen to this idiot uh, as he is talking about, hmm, disinfectant. Could we somehow inject that into the body of humans? He, go, he, he said, the doctors may want to look into that. I, to me, to me, I'm just waiting, as Greg said, Greg said a confrontation. I'm just waiting for one of these people to just say, you know what, um... I gotta cuss this fool out. I, 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 I I'm just, I, I'm thinking about uh, that scene when, 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 when uh, Theo was talking to uh, Cliff Huxtable, uh, you know, that famous scene, and Cliff was like, "That's the dumbest idea I ever heard in my life." I, I'm waiting for that moment to happen in one of these news conferences, Erica. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not holding my breath. And honestly, I'm, I'm going to continue to say that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And I think that um, for all of us that have lost people very close to us, I'm thinking about my um, friend, my dear sister, Femi Anderson. I'm thinking about Rowena Daniels. I'm thinking about J.D. McRae. These are people that I know um, that have um, died as a consequence of coronavirus. So that the political malpractice, just the outright danger that he continues to put people in because our community is definitely prone to misinformation and disinformation is literally malpractice that's happening every day. So continuing to combat what um, Donald Trump um, gets airtime for five days a week, seven days a week, whenever he opens up his mouth, I think that um, this show and other shows that do combat by providing facts that do provide black experts is of the utmost importance. And as long as he is allowed the space um, and the time to be able to do what he does, which does not impact him in a personal way, I think he's going to continue to kill people. Uh, I want to right now, I want to bring up uh, our next guest, uh, because we talk about this whole issue of uh, pandemics. Trust me, in this in disparities, this goes back uh, a very long time. Uh, the, the book, it's a groundbreaking book published in 1991 by my next guest, looks at the health disparities from the 1900 to present day. Uh, the book is From TB to AIDS, Epidemics Among Urban Blacks Since 1900. David McBride is the author. He's the professor of African-American studies and African-American history at Penn State University. David, glad to have you on Roland Martin Unfiltered. For all these people out here who are going, oh my God, this is surprise this is shock uh the, the thing that the thing that you are saying point blank is that this is not a shock this is not something that ha has happened for the first time we have seen these health disparities play out uh for a long period of time affecting african-americans uh, absolutely right roland uh and thank you for having me can you hear me well Yep, we got you just fine. Okay. Well, yeah, um, the, the disparities in, in black communities go back to the post-emancipation period. I mean, in the early uh, 1900s, 
tuberculosis was so widespread throughout the the nation um, uh, uh, and affecting blacks so uh, extremely that it there was uh, many people in the medical establishment actually thought that black black Americans would die out as a race, and there was much talk in the medical establishment that is um, physicians and medical schools and health leaders for the government they actually thought that blacks were, were going to become extinct from tuberculosis. That's how high the rates were and the mortality rates and such. Um, fortunately, blacks never bought into this idea, uh, and they began to do what they did for 250 years under slavery. That is, they began to build, build their own institutions and their own uh, um, networks and such to uh, not only uh, sustain their health, but to promote themselves uh, as, far as, as far as health health goes. So this is the era around 1900 when you had people like Daniel Hale Williams emerge, the great uh, heart surgeon. You had the development of a National Negro Health Week, which was established by um, Booker T. Washington and also uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Howard University and Tuskegee University. Um, they put this movement together so that the black community themselves could uh, contribute to promoting their health, uh, you know, on a daily and, and community and national level. So while the politicians, the Southern white politicians and, and, and medical establishment were expecting blacks to die off and withholding resources from black communities and such, because they felt that this was a fait accompli that would only take time, uh, black educators and religious leaders civic leaders and community activists put together their own institutions, uh, something that I call throughout my writings, I call it the black medical world. Um, black medical schools, black nursing schools, many of them attached to the um, historic black colleges. They came to the fore, and by World War II, we had about 200 black hospitals uh, in, in the country. Uh, so what this did was... it. it Many of the well, the black medical professionals and educators and such, they basically laughed at this idea that blacks were going to just die out, uh, and that uh, you know they had certain biological um, tendencies to to be weak in the in the face of of of, of uh, health crises and epidemics like tuberculosis. We go into another stage of black self help in the health uh, in the health area uh, during and after World War II. Uh, we see uh, many of the black medical associations, nursing associations and such, try to keep up with the national modernization of, of hospitals and such that was occurring around, around the country. And we see a political movement come out of the, the ranks of, of black health uh, promoters, be they in the polit political sphere or be they in community institutions or religious institutions and such, they all began to say, look, our hospitals are tiny. They can't keep up with these big, with these big uh, uh, growth of, of, of modern hospitals. So what we need to do is we need to get inside and integrate America's um, hospital structures. So we see in the 50s, alongside Brown versus Board of Education in the educational sphere, we see movements among black doctors, among the black civil rights organizations and such, we see them pushing to break down the barriers 
against black patients and black medical uh, providers uh, on the part of federally funded and federally supported and federally licensed hospitals. Um, so the Inhotep movement develops in the 19, late 1950s, led by black physicians. They put a challenge to the American Hospital Association, the AMA, and basically they said, listen, you know, we fought World War II, you know, we, 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 we fought Korea. Now we need to fight um, segregation here uh, with regard to discrimination in hospitals. Um, <clears throat> David, I have, uh, questions. I, have a, I have questions from three of my panelists. I want to first start uh, with Greg Carr, then I'm going to go to uh, Erica, then I'm going to go to Reese. Greg Carr, sure. what's your question for David McBride? It's very quickly. Thank you, Professor McBride. And only on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Look, if we were not quarantined, <laughs> I'd get you to sign my copy of your book, brother. You see, I got it right here. But okay. my question, <laughs> my question right really there. has go. to do with, given the fact that, and I haven't seen you on any other media outlet, that you really mm -hmm. have studied how epidemics have affected the black community since, as you say, the mid-19th century to now, what do you see as the future of black institutions uh, intervening as they've done in the past. I'm thinking about Meharry and Howard, Morehouse School of Medicine. What can black institutions, what do you think black institutions should be doing at this point in this moment of coronavirus to kind of work together and work with public health uh, officials, civic leaders to, to kind of really help us combat this issue? Well, I, you raise a great question and you can get a lot of uh, leads and tips by looking at what the black Black institutions did during the HIV epidemic. In the early 1980s, the federal government was slow. The disease was heavily stigmatized. Um, blacks were among groups that were considered, you know, the most marginal in American society. That is your 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 gays and your uh, um, IV drug users and such. All of these folk were, were lumped together and ignored. And what uh, many of the black institutions did was. They just ran around, the, you know, did an end run and began to develop their own community activism. We see, uh, for example, in New York City in the 19, late 1980s, the black churches got together and formed a, a black uh, 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 coalition, black church coalition involving over 700 black churches. And what they did, they became an arm for information dissemination. Um, uh, black colleges had conferences and such relating to the, the growing age crisis. So whereas blacks were ringing a national alarm about AIDS, uh, a lot of the federal um, uh, health care providers and, and big academic centers and such did not see it as, as a problem. So black institutions are pivotal. And that's kind of where I was going with my initial uh, lead-in you know, at the top of my talk, is that no reduction of health disparities, historic health disparities that blacks experience can occur without blacks taking the lead in, 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 in many different sectors, black medical uh, leadership, black religious leadership, black educational leadership, all of these institutions that are in uh, and have hands on uh, our black neighborhoods and youth and such, they have to motivate, they have to mobilize uh, to the best of their capacity and show up at the table. Uh, Roland had a great guest a couple, a week or so ago, I think his, his name was uh, Bryant. His last name was Jonathan Bryant. But he was talking about... John, 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 John Ho Bryant. Yes, yes, sir. And he was talking about, you know, we, we have to have a, like a double consciousness. On one hand, we, we have to be able to, to mobilize our core institutions, which we can do, and they're always there for us. 
last night there was a great um, um, uh, uh, program on, on BET, the, the, the COVID-19 uh, relief program, where all the you know, superstars, actresses, and musicians and, and such uh, got together and, 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 and gave a great uh, shot of, of, of inspiration out to the Black public. That's one example. And getting back to the, uh, you know, some, some other um, uh, strategies, uh, we definitely need black political activists, just as, as Roland, your, your prior guest, uh, Roland, uh, uh, Steve, Steve Horsford, we need the black congressional uh, members to do exactly what, what they're doing now. They have to step up their advocacy, which they're doing. So I, I would, to answer uh, uh, Brother Carr's um, question, it, there's not one strategy, but a whole slew of of strategies that are appropriate for your different institutions and such that blacks have to have to galvanize and implement to start to push back this tidal wave of uh, of, of, of COVID-19 that has fallen on top of our, our pre-existing tidal wave of health disparities. Thank you. All right, folks, here's my next question. My next question? Yes, sir. All right, um, Erica. You're up. Professor Erica Orisi, who's there? Okay, I'm Erica, here. go ahead. Erica, go ahead. Hi, Erica, I can hear you. Sure. Okay, great, Professor McBride. So I'm from Albany, Georgia. It's great to see you. So very familiar with Milledgeville. And you part, you answered my question um, a bit from Dr. Carr. Um, you answered it partially from what the question Dr. Carr proposed. I'm just really wondering about how that information can be distilled and disseminated into rural communities, um, specifically <laughs> communities that really don't receive the information in a timely manner. And by the time that it's disseminated to those communities, they're already having devastating outcomes from that. So um, is there something that you have found or you've seen any mechanisms that are working in black rural communities that's been effective in disseminating information around COVID? Well, I, I, I have come across many cases in which uh, public health Nursing, nursing um, uh, organizations, volunteer uh, nursing uh, organizations—they are usually equipped and trained to to take uh, complex you know, medical information out into into rural areas. And I would I would kind of check and see what they're up to, and maybe they they need resources and such. But I'm sure they'd be happy to work with with a, a black colleges or, or black uh, community organizations and, and churches and such. To try to to try to bring bring a message to to the most uh, needy in those rural areas, but I, I would also check with public health departments, uh, in 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 the um in the particular county that that you that you you are you are addressing. Um, even though they they may not show up um, on a regular basis before this before this pandemic has hit, they oftentimes are, are do have resources. They're happy. To work with people, but but we have to kind of, uh, as going back to to, to Jonathan Bryant's uh, cue, you know, we kind of have to have to take the first step and, and and see if we can get them galvanized and and, and moving in, in, into our into our communities. But we can't do it alone, you know, and, and right. we have to work with people who maybe um, we have we not have not customarily worked with before. But but I would say check with the with the well-being health centers in your area. Um, uh, again, um, visiting nurses association and um, any other the health uh, community health hospital community hospitals and community health centers oftentimes are very interested in community outreach. All right, last question here, and so let's go to uh, Reese Colbert. Reese, Reese, what is your question for Dr. David McBride? 
Dr. McBride, my question to you is, how concerned are you with the misinformation, disinformation that targets our community? Erica touched on this a little bit earlier. I've seen kind of different conspiracies bandied about, like Dr. Um, uh, Bill Gates, sorry, is funding a vaccine, and so it's going to be some sort of like t- world takeover. And I've actually run across people that I consider to be intelligent Black people that are saying things like, I'm not going to take a vaccine when it comes out. So mm-hmm. what can we do to combat, or what kind of message would you, can you send to Black people who are concerned or who have a mistrust for potential medical treatments in the form of a vaccine or anything else that will come out of this pandemic? Wow, that's a great question. And everyone needs to turn that over many times after the show. Uh, but I'll just give you, you know, some quick uh, uh, thoughts. That That is a big barrier. You know, many people say, well, we have to have, you know, step up the testing to, you know, to, to, to super high levels and such. And we all are in agreement. But we also know that there will be people who are not interested in giving, you know, having any tests. They're scared of the results. They're scared they might be ostracized. There's a whole history of mistrust among uh, the black public, black communities, individuals and such. Uh, There's a whole history of mistrust we can have a a separate show on uh, with regard to the medical uh, establishment. I noticed that many people interviewed and such among the um, the experts and the the healthcare providers. uh, I'm not sure we see a lot of uh, down-home type uh, black physicians, uh, men and women, uh, you know, in, in, in the overall body of, of, of some of those, some of, some of that coverage. And I'm not, and so what I'm getting at is cultural competencies. And what I'm getting at is the fact that um, people from within the culture, let's say health promoters and medical caregivers who are from within the culture, they are most effective in um, circumscribing, overcoming some of these, uh, these, uh, uh, these lay uh, conspiracy, conspiracy ideas and resistance uh, and, and fear, just straight up fear that a lot of black lay people have with respect to exposing themselves to to testing or to interviewing or to, you know, contact tracing and things of that sort. That's why we need to have that meeting between community lay elements as well as skilled medical uh, um, um, caregivers, whether they're professionals or al- in the allied fields, we need to bring both of those elements together when we uh, work with the black public. A lot of those conspiratorial fears and such are grounded in, in history and culture of, of racism that, that has been embedded in much of healthcare um, provision throughout the history of, of this country. All right. Folks, the book is called, uh, I want to get it right, From TB to AIDS, Epidemics Among Urban Blacks Since 1900. Uh, David McBride is the author. He is the professor. Yes. Roland, may I make one quick comment? I I have a new book. Real quick. It's called called Caring for Equality. Caring for Equality just came out. Uh, If you go to Penn State University African American Studies um, webpage, you'll get information on how to contact me. But the new book, Came for Equality, it includes a lot that, that uh, ideas and such that you'll find in from TB to AIDS. Thanks so much, Roland. Okay. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you so very much. Uh, all right, right, folks. Uh, we, um, 
Thank you very much, folks. Uh, coming up, and we're going to have something great coming up uh, in just a moment, uh, and that is the Black Women's Roundtable is going to be having their Power Table Talk series. Uh, Melanie Campbell, she is the president and CEO of National Coalition of Black City Participation. Uh, she is the convener of the Black Women's Roundtable. She is going to be uh, joined by Karen Finney, Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, Cleola Brown, president of A. Philip Randolph Institute, Latasha Brown, co-founder Black Voters Matter, uh, Glenda Carr, co-founder and president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, Bishop Leah Daltrey, she's the author and co-convener of Power Rising, Dr. Avis Jones-DeWeaver, author and founder of Exceptional Leadership Institute for Women, and Mignon Moore, author and co-convener of Power Rising. So they're going to be coming up in just a second for an amazing conversation. Uh, but what I did want to do this here, I told you, uh, for the folks who join our Bring the Funk fan club, uh, the folks uh, who came in at $50 or more, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, we have been, uh, it has been uh, amazing seeing the response of folks uh, supporting the show. I told you uh, this week, those folks uh, who, uh, who gave at those levels, we're going to get a personal shout out on the show. Here we go. Aaron Brown, Almeida Graham, Andrea Cooper, Andrea Griffin, Bernard uh, McIver, BMAC Productions, Busy as a B Productions, uh, uh, Byron uh, Greenwich, Kathy's uh, uh, Avon Corner, Candace Hill, Charlene Pitchford, Consuelo Cooks, Darius Simmons, David Coleman, David L. Brown Jr., Dexter Muckle, Diane Luther, Danella Houston, Ellis Lopez, Travel Partners, LLC, Gentle B-Star, LLC, Jermaine Wells, Jason Johnson, John Colburn, Julianne Wilson, Kristen Graves, Lloyd Kirkendall, Lori Saunders, Lorraine Sweet, Maurice Patton, Maxine Chin, on Deck Printing, Pamela Whitfield, Paula Goddard, Renetta English, Robert Mariner, Rodney Bradley, Rosalind Wilson, Selena Tamu, Sherry Lynn Pringle, Sharon Rutherford, Sherman Wright, Sherry Ford, Sherilyn Parham, Steve Rogers, Tanya Whitley, Tracy Carraway, uh, Vicki Wynn, and Vivian Burns. And so I certainly appreciate all of you. And so the folks, uh, so what we do is the cutoff is 5 p.m. You give after that, then we'll be reading your name out on the show tomorrow. A few people hit me up saying, hey, I gave didn't hear my name. And so just send us an email. And now you know we're going to double check first. You know, we're going to do that first. That's how we got That's how we got to do that, Greg Carr. Uh, some <laughs> folks uh, try to slide in there. We're trying to get a shout out. Uh, but no, we certainly appreciate all the folks who support support Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, thanks for the uh, the shortened conversation. Normally we go two hours with just our panel, uh, but because of this special we're doing with a Black Women's Roundtable, uh, they are going to now pick it up. Folks, don't go anywhere. Trust me, you don't want to miss the conversation. Uh, but again, I want to thank uh, Reese. I want to thank Erica. I want to thank Greg for being on our panel. Thank you so very much. Uh, great conversation there. Uh, and y'all, just do me a favor. Do not listen to that idiot Donald Trump. Don't walk around, take, put some disinfectants in your damn mouth thinking that's going to get rid of coronavirus. That's a doggone shame, the stupidity. Uh, but you don't want to miss tomorrow's show, uh, Dr. Erica Hilton. Y'all, she is hot. And Greg, she used a phrase that Reese, uh, she used a phrase, I'm just going to read this one here. Uh, she said she was 38 hot. Now, uh, Erica, I ain't know what the hell 38 hot was. Uh, she said, uh, that's a country phrase. Uh, it and is. Then, so she had to send me. She had, it is. So, uh, Erica, you know about 38 hot, right? All day long and cutting folks and daring them to bleed, baby. <laughs> okay, so she had to she had to send she had to send me this, Reese. Thirty eight hot originating down south. This term refers to someone being pissed off to the point of pulling out a gun. That's how mad she was watching Donald Trump today. So she's going. Dr. Erica is going to be with us tomorrow. Well, she's going to uh, explain to us why. She, huh? 
Dr. Ebony, Jane Hilton. She's going to be on the She's going to explain why she was so 38 hot. So <laughs> okay. on, let's do that. All right, all right, folks. Now we're about to transition to this great conversation with Black Women's Roundtable. Y'all take it away. Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Roland. Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so very, very much uh, for the partnership um, and speaking truth to power every day. My name is Melanie Campbell and I am the president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation and also the convener of the Black Women's Roundtable. So we welcome you to the launch of our Power Table Talk series. Uh, and today's topic, we're going to, this is our first, our very first. And this is, we're bringing you into a Power Table conversation with, and I'm, I'm, you, you're going to hear that word power, power, power a lot tonight. Why? Because Black women are owning our power. And so we decided we would bring this conversation on as we're all dealing with the coronavirus pandemic and is having many of us who are really um, uh, 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 privileged in, a, in, in many ways to be able to shelter at home because so many of our folks are having to get out there who are first responders and have to go out there every day at the hospitals and, uh, and sanitation workers and, and so many folks uh, who are out here having to be out here every day to make sure the grocery store workers and the, and the list go on, the EP, the, um, the, uh, the ambulance drivers and, and the bus drivers and so many of our folks who have to get out there every day. Uh, so we are indeed privileged to be able to shelter at home, those of us who can. And then there are those who are, who are not, who don't even have a home. So we're blessed. So today we're gonna to have this conversation. Um, my role is not to be uh, a speaker or a moderator, um, but the first, uh, this first conversation, our inaugural power table conversation topic is the power of black women's leadership and vote in 2020 presidential election. And so we are just delighted to have our inaugural moderator, uh, Karen Finney, who's a political consultant, who you've seen her on MSNBC, and she's done so many awesome things as a political strategist and, and leader, uh, not just in media, but as, as in uh, working with uh, various campaigns, uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign, and I'll get to call off all your campaigns and, and work on <laughs> national and state elections, but she's just a powerful Black woman uh, who speaks truth to power. She smiles, but don't let that smile fool you. So I'm going to turn it over to Karen Finney, who will introduce our first Power Table panelist. Uh, and I thank all of you all, sisters, who are on this line. There will be a second panel that will start uh, in about 45 minutes from here, which will be around about 8 o'clock. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Karen to get us started. Right. And thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Melanie. This is so exciting to be part of this conversation, and particularly in this moment, because yes, we're dealing with COVID, but you know we know the election is coming in November, and we have got to be ready, and we've got to be extra ready, I think, than even before, because we know the power of Black women is what is going to propel uh, Joe Biden to the presidency, or at least propel Donald Trump out of it. Uh, Let's put it that way. And so it's so important that we have these conversations and we share information and that we share knowledge and wisdom uh, and share that with our networks. I'm gonna quickly introduce our panel and then jump right into our questions. Um, we are joined by uh, Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, Clayola Brown, president of the A. Philip Randolph Institute, um, Latasha Brown, co-founder Black Voters Matter, Glenda Carr, who is co-founder, president, and CEO of Higher Heights for America, 
Bishop Leah Daughtry, who is a mentor, also author to me, also author and co-convener of Power Rising, which I'm honored to uh, be a part of. Uh, Dr. Avis Jones DeWeaver, who is author and founder Exceptional Leadership Institute for Women. And Mignon Moore, another mentor. We've traveled many political roads and miles together. Uh, she is also an author and a co-convener of Power Rising. So I'm going to start with really the hot topic, I think, of the day, of the week, certainly. Uh, Joe Biden announced this week that he will be, you know, we've had some speculation for some time, but this week he made it official that he's going to very soon announce the vetting team for his vice presidential nominee and really kick that process off. Um, and so I think the most important question that we could start with, and maybe Mignon, I'll start with you, and then I'll just ask to go around and everybody please weigh in. You know, now he said a woman. I think some of us thought we heard a woman of color, but it, how important is it that it's a black woman? Uh, and, and then I'll also ask the other panelists to weigh in in terms of why it's important and what that will do in terms of how we think about this election and governing. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Karen. And Melanie, thank you for convening this panel. I'm honored to be on with so many prestigious women who I've worked with and admire. I think to the, to the, an the answer to your question is for me personally, and I only speak for me because I'm the only one in my house. I am social distancing from everybody. I'm alone in this house. But for me, I hope that he considers an African-American woman, a black woman. Um, I feel I feel pretty strongly about that. And it's not because, you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm tired of, we just happen to be qualified. I just like the American people to know that we are qualified. And some of the names that I've heard that have been floated out there, I think each one of these women, if you look at their credentials, that's what the vetting process is all about. If you look at their credentials, they are immensely qualified to do this job. I think we have to affirm our credentials Black women tend to affirm other people's credentials, but I think this is a time where if you look at each one of these women that are being named, we do a disservice to them if we cannot affirm who they are. And so I am excited about the process. I'm excited about the fact that Joe Biden is our nominee, but I'm also excited about the potential of seeing so many beautiful faces that look like yours on, in that vetting process. Anyone else want to weigh in? Avis, Amy? Sure. Absolutely. You know, to me, it, this is a no-brainer. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, if it were not for Black women and the Black community, uh, it is a great likelihood that uh, Vice President Biden would not be the presumptive nominee at this moment. Uh, it is not a stretch at all to say that that campaign was literally on its last legs when South Carolina came in and changed the whole dynamic, completely flipped the script. And then we did it over and over and over again, mm -hmm. state after state after state in North Carolina and Virginia, uh, obviously in Mississippi, uh, in states just all over the nation. Uh, now, I, I say that not just to say that we are owed, even though we are owed. <laughs> I say that to also <laughs> sort of, uh, <laughs> I say that to also remind us of the power of black women as voters in America, generally speaking, and also specifically within the Democratic Party. And if he wants to win in November, he needs to think about how are you going to energize the black community to 
overperform in terms of turnout, mm -hmm. especially in key states that he needs to make sure he carries, like Pennsylvania, like Ohio, like Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, you know Wisconsin, key mm -hmm. states where the black turnout could be the margin of victory. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, it's an issue of not only um, really giving where uh, a debt is owed and deserved, because obviously we're qualified, there's lots of us who are qualified, mm -hmm. but it's also about looking forward in terms of what is actually necessary to energize the electorate to win in November. And you will not have an, an energized electorate to the maximum of its capabilities unless you energize Black women. And there's no better way to do that than to have a Black woman on the ticket. Mm -hmm. Leah? You know, the other piece that I just want to offer um, is that in addition to that, and ditto that everything has been said, there's a particular contribution of Black women's leadership. Like, if America ever needed the leadership of a Black woman, it is right now. <laughs> and, and, I saw, and I think that we also, there is a particular, you know, some of the most qualified leaders that have progressive voices in this country are black women. And so it's not just a matter of, you know, oftentimes we see it in the context of identity politics as tokenism. Mm -hmm. No, constantly on the forefront of progressive politics in this country has always been black women. And mm -hmm. so part of it has been our leadership style. Mm -hmm. Part of it has been our leadership in context of how, what it took for us to get to those places mm -hmm. to really be able to lead and who we represent. The second thing has been also our, uh, our attachment, our uh, affirmation, whenever we have seen, and we've been in spaces, I often say, whenever black folks fight for something, all of America does better, right? Mm -hmm. And we've got the receipts for that. So I also think this is a fundamental moment around the, the leadership of black women is needed in this particular moment. Yeah. Uh, to that, I would add that I think we have to recognize that this November is going to be an election unlike any that we've seen mm -hmm. before because we will be coming out of the, uh, the well, at least we hope, pray, maybe we might be in the aftermath of COVID. We may have a different kind of election system with more states adopting absentee balloting and vote by mail. And those are circumstances, if, if, if a large part of the country goes to vote by mail, uh, mm -hmm. and absentee balloting, we have no organizing experience in that kind of election. Mm -hmm. And so it will take the creativity, the influence, and the, the, the ability to move people in the way that only Black women can in order to make sure that our people turn out. Our people don't have a lot of experience. Most Americans don't have a lot of experience with filling out a ballot and getting a stamp and then and taking it to, we don't know how to do that. So it's gonna take our ingenuity and the way that we know how to knock on doors and not just take ourselves to vote, but take our house to vote, our neighbor down the hall, across the street to get people to do something that is unfamiliar to them. Yeah. In order to show, in order to not just reach our normal levels of voting, but to exceed that. And in order to do that, you're going to have to generate the kind of enthusiasm that uh, nominating a, a black woman vice presidential candidate will engender among black women. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Bishop. And I, I think the, a lot of the points really... Uh, point to the fact that it's not just our leadership and our political vision, it's our numbers and our turnout that it's not, you know, you know, people will say, well, is this just a historic thing or is this just a, you know, a moral statement? No, buddy. Right. 
this is the most strategic path to winning in November. When we look at the, um, the swing states, the battleground states that were mentioned um, earlier today, uh, you know, we, we're focused on black women elevating turnout and really being that key vote in places like Arizona, Texas, Georgia. There's some uh, Georgians on the call, uh, Florida, um, as well as the Midwest states. Um, we could have a situation, and we're at that cusp right now, where Joe Biden's campaign has a decision. It can go the direction that Hillary Clinton went, which is to pick a Tim Kaine character, which was a not not an inspiring. Remember, a lot was made that he's made of the fact that he spoke Spanish. And they were like, "Oh, he'll he'll." Act. We know that that's not true, and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but the other option is to balance out his ticket. There's so many black women who are ready to be president right now. And, and that has been the case. Right. We're not, we don't want a repeat of 2016. That's, that's how we got here with the damage of, that, that Trump and the Republicans have done um, to this country. And so um, just like we said in 2016, we say now follow the leadership of black women. And we're not saying it like a hashtag. We're saying put, uh, put a qualified leader who's ready to be president you know, on the ticket who can carry some of these battleground states and holds that progressive uh, political vision that motivates so many of us black women that's the actual strategic path to the White House. So uh, let's be, and wait, Glenda, I want to get you both in here, but I'm just going to tweak this question a little bit because I think, you know, we've talked a lot about turnout. I think it's also very important that we talk about governing, mm -hmm. right? Because Biden has said he wants somebody he's simpatico with. I would just remind him he was simpatico with Barack Obama. They made history. Why not make it again? That's my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's important that we also remind people, and Glenda, obviously this is an important part of the work that um, you know that you do is just is pushing forward the leadership of Black women, the competence, the qualifications, the you know the confidence that we should have in Black women's ability to, as I say, be a governing partner to Joe Biden. You know, because I think it's very possible we don't know where we'll be. God willing, he wins, and it's a, it's January 2021. Will we be in a second wave of COVID? We've heard that from mm -hmm. doctors. Will we be still? We'll certainly still be in an economic recovery stage. Mm -hmm. So you know, he's going to need a, a team and and a governing partner who can really help him come at this thing. So maybe Cleola and Glenda, if you could weigh in on that part of it yeah. too. What's well, it? Great segue, Karen, for what I was already going to talk about. <laughs> I do my best. Um, is that if you look at the short list of 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 all the women um, that people are talking about that could be possible um, vice president um, mates, as well as the black women, they all possess. For you know, you have people that have foreign affairs um, policy background. You have. Um, congressional members who started out on local level. So they know local governments, they know statewide governance, they know um, they know federal, uh, how to govern federally. They know how to walk, uh, work across party lines. They are, um, you know, they have backgrounds in business. They have backgrounds as um, attorneys. That all being said, I need America and I need black America to recognize that black women are ready to lead in this moment. The only thing standing in the way is our perception of what we think leadership looks like. Mm -hmm. And leadership does not need to be white, all white. It does not need to be male, and it does not need to be a male of a certain age. So if you close your eyes right now and put the, the resumes of every woman that is on that short list, and I throw some men on that, you would open your eye, with, with your eyes closed, you would pick 
probably one of the black women that has been named. Mm -hmm. Great point. Cleola, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I did. Um, a piece of what uh, Bishop Dodger said a little bit earlier about familiarity to, I know we're not talking about the GOTV piece, but specifically about a black female as a candidate, but in line with that, which is vitally important, that black women have ground game. Mm -hmm. Relationships in the various communities and the outreach that we have just by being on a ticket shores up all of the shortnesses that we're talking about as well without a female being on that ticket. It's really hard to keep saying to folks that um, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, we've got to do this, and they never see a reflection of self. Mm -hmm. the, the proof of that pudding was certainly uh, measured before in our turnout. Uh, the proof of survival from now until November is the piece that really is pretty scary to me. This virus is going to block a lot of folks from um, letting anybody come and talk to them about anything. Mm -hmm. Open the door for them. And the conversations on the telephone is also really, really hard to do because everybody's begging for money, soliciting for something else, or have no relationship with the people that they're calling. Mm -hmm. Part of my saying that is this. If we are able to get what is due us uh, during this uh, marrying up of the candidates that will represent the Democratic Party, or uh, I certainly don't have a whole lot to say about the Republican Party, but I'm trying to do this without my partisan hat on. We've got to be able to have a game that's so tight during this time that we can at least reach the end goal that's out there. Yeah. I can think of no better candidate than a woman of color being a part of that ticket. I also think we forget, or we don't always give ourselves enough credit. We know how to do politics. We have ground game, but we can do politics, right? Mm -hmm. and, and on a ticket, we can help do the politics that need to get done mm -hmm. in order to continue to build the kind of coalition and support that Biden will need, but, but in also in governing, right? Which is gonna be so important. And one of the things that I think is someone mentioned that is so important about the fact that these women also have local experience and state mm -hmm, experience. Mm -hmm. That is one of the areas where Trump is completely blowing it in terms mm -hmm. of has no ability to and has really, I think, kind of given up his, any authority to really coordinate to make sure supply chain issues are being dealt with so that we're getting testing or that resources are getting where they need to. And so I think, if, you know, to what Glenda was saying, if you, you know, just put down on paper and look at what these women have done, it's such an important part that I think also doesn't get, isn't necessarily, doesn't get enough conversation and isn't always valued enough, mm -hmm. uh, frankly. I want to move us on because obviously the VP piece is critically important, mm -hmm. but this is a big election for black women who are on the ballot um, in other, right? We have a, a record number of black women who won in 2018 who are now thankfully part of the Congressional Black Caucus, whose seats we need to defend, we need to make sure they are reelected. Um, and then we have some you know, young women, black women running for the first time uh, in a number of different offices. And you know, Glenda, I'm gonna actually ask you to kick this off um, because I think you probably have the best working knowledge of who all the various candidates are. But I think it's also important as we think about, and I guess the question that I've put to the group is, you know what are the other ways we need to think about growing the political power of black women in the context of an election? 
Yeah, so I'll start with, um, this has been my my place where I do my Zoom meetings and who's always over my shoulder is Shirley Chisholm, right? And so we're um, 51 years from her being elected um, to be the first Black woman to ever um, serve in um, the United House of Representatives. So we have made major gains, but the 23 million Black women in this country are still underrepresented and underserved, right? And so we have an opportunity to not only change the face of leadership, but change that um, face of leadership with unique qualities. So the freshman class um, that were, um, was uh, elected in 2018, um, what brought that was not just that they were black women, but we sent a nurse, a teacher, a city council member, a state legislator who is a Somalian refugee and a, um, a, a mother of a slain black boy. So they bring their unique experiences to those decision-making tables and they're exactly where they need to be. We have the 2016 teacher of the year, Johanna Hayes, being part of a conversation about how do we um, educate every child during Corona. Um, COVID-19. We have a nurse in L Lauren Underwood sitting at that decision-making table. And this is just a handful of the women that came in in 2018 on the federal, statewide, and top 100 cities. We have Black women that are like leading these major cities from Chicago to Atlanta um, to New Orleans to Baton Rouge. There's seven Black women, right? So that being said, we need to expand that leadership and expand that leadership with amazing backgrounds. So what will, at the end of the day, when the numbers come in, we will have another record number of black women um, running for particularly Congress in districts that are not districts that are um, black, in, um, black and brown districts. Like they're running in districts like a Lauren Underwood, a district that is only 3% um, African-American, which shows people are looking for qualified experience and they happen to be black, amazing black women, right? And so you, we have veterans running, we have um, mothers, um, school board members, all running for Congress in Texas to Indiana um, to um, the Deep South. All that being said is the top of the ticket in, in um, COVID-19 obviously is at the front of all of the conversations happening in the media. We need people to be able to talk about these women. Um, and being able to um, get their message out. And we'll be able to not only bring more Black women into Congress, um, but also, frankly, be able to elect Black women down ballot, including creating a larger um, pipeline of Black women so that the one place that we can continue um, to have a lack of representation, frankly, is on statewide executive levels. So we've never had a Black woman um, governor um, in our 243-year history. Um, and we only have um, seven black women, six black women currently serving in statewide executive office. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and the um, African-American vote has a real um, important role to play in not only voting for these women, but um, sending financial resources and volunteer hours to be able to help them get out the vote and win no in, in their primaries and in November. I just want to add some quick things because I think that is really important. I think we know that Black women leadership in our community, but I'm so glad that the work um, that my sister is doing to really be able to highlight, Glenda's doing to highlight um, Black women. Well, we've got to have some real conversations around this too that are really um, based in the fact that we need Black women candidates to be able to have more investment in their campaigns. That mm -hmm. oftentimes, you know, one of the few organizations is Higher Heights, 
that has actually been raising resources for black women. There are not enough organizations and there are not enough groups that are actually leveraging and make sure that they're campaign dollars for black women. The other couple of points I want to make is that we also got to deal with this issue of sexism within our communities. That oftentimes what we see as, as, as late as last year, um, in 2018 election, my partner and I, we went around with doing work throughout in Florida and I was not allowed to be able to speak at a church because I was a woman. Right. We in 2020, we still there, y'all. And we're not having those conversations in our community because it's good enough for us to serve. We're good enough to really be able to do the work. But ultimately, when it comes to leadership, there's a fundamental issue around sexism that we've got to deal with. And I don't that I also think that we've got to deal with in our community that we don't talk about. And then the third thing I want to say is that there are women, black women that run. And when those black women run and they're not supported in a certain kind of way, it does something around it really, it's really hard for us to really say, I'm gonna put myself back out there. Because it's really hard to run. Sisters run. Run, run, run. Abraham Lincoln ran seven times. And so we've got to encourage sisters to run and seek public office too and dispel and push back when folks always want to raise up the issue around qualifications when it comes to women and who's able to govern, right? But they don't hold that same standard when we're looking at white male leadership or even male leadership within our own communities. Mm -hmm. Anyone else want to weigh in? Yeah, Mignon. Oh, amen. <laughs> I would say amen. That is absolutely the truth. And I think that I think that it's important for us to focus on what Latasha said because you know when our women when African American women run for office, they are the least supported. They are the least supported financially. You know, I look at what Lucy Macbeth has to go through right now. She's gonna have, you know, a awful race, but she is like she's doubling down and she's doing she's doing her thing. And you know. Some people are for, some people aren't for, but we must be for them. And one of the reasons why I'm, I'm delighted that we are all gathered here today, because we have to affirm each other. We don't have to like each other. We don't even have to take each other home, but we have to do more affirming each other, especially if we know these women have paved the way and they are doing the work to even run. That whole list of people that Glenda rattled off, we still have judges. All those women that were elected in Houston, they're up. I mean, I met with them, they are up. So we have to support our judges. We talk about criminal justice reform, then we have to get in the pipeline. Right. You know McConnell has already appointed over a hundred federal judges. So that is going to be a, that's, got, that's a stepping block that we have to go over. So we really need to stay focused on the fact that if we see a black or brown woman out there running, yes, we can look at her qualifications sometimes, but you know, we've seen a lot of people fell up. Now, I'm just going to tell you, it's been a lot less qualified than half the women that are running. <laughs> and I'm just going to put it out there. So please don't be so judgmental that we all of a sudden got to put these extra barriers around our women. You know, if they, if we know they got integrity, if we know they can, you know, if they know they're going to, they're willing to do the work, mm -hmm. then I think we need to get behind them. And I'm really big this year on, can we band together? Yeah. You know, I don't care if you don't like me. I really want you to just understand that our future is at stake. And we have more at stake than I think anybody in America. We have held America up and it's time for America to hold us up. Do you hear me, America? Amen. Because I'm saying this to our allies out there as well. 
it's time for you all to hold us up as well. Yeah, I, I would, I, uh, that's so profound and um, important. The thing about Black women's leadership, which is uh, uh, for me, um, the reason it is the moment isn't um, only that a Lauren Underwood could be successful and flip a district that's 3% white. It's that a Stacey Abrams in a swing state of Georgia can expand the Asian American and the Latinx vote, could expand and appeal to progressive whites and expand the electorate uh, overall. We see black women at, uh, uh, that are running for office at uh, you know, the county level or at the state level who are able to speak the language of racial justice. Mm -hmm. And I think right now, um, a lot of the country, a lot of America is looking to black women to be the, the moral leader and also the ability to bridge. When we started the conversation talking about Joe Biden, Joe Biden's first big commercial uh, was something that, that really used anti-Asian tropes um, in order to make an argument that he should be president. It wasn't aimed uh, at and didn't have the language uh, that connected his campaign with not only just Asian Americans, but you know, we black people recognize racism when we see it. So um, there is something really needed healing about uh, the power of black women to attract and build a coalition at the local state and the federal level. Uh, it's what we're gonna need um, this year, but it's, it's the quality of black women's leadership uh, and the courageousness with which we advocate for other communities as well as our own that I think really positions us very well. Um, we need to bring in more money and organize ourselves, and also tap other communities for the support uh, that I think is out there for black women's leadership. I know we are coming towards the uh, closing of our session. We, I've got another question I wanna put forward, but just before we leave this topic, I wonder, um, Cleola or Avis or Lee, if you want to weigh in on this point that Mignon made about how we also get other groups to invest in us, believe in us, lift us up, because it does feel like, you know, we're always asked and our groups are always asked to, you know, sign on to other people's letters or movements or, and that's important. And, you know, where there is common issue, you know, common ground, we should, I think working in coalition is important. But it feels like, you know, do we feel like we get that same return when we go and ask for that support, which is also part of building political power for Black women? Yeah, I would just jump in first and say that, unfortunately, we don't. I mean, the, the reality is that oftentimes uh, we are the center, the moral center, quite frankly, I believe, of this nation. And so when we see wrong, we, we naturally go and, and raise our voices and, and act in fellowship and act in allyship with various other groups. However, uh, when it comes to our issues and issues that are specific to our needs, uh, it is as if we always have to fight those battles alone. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's particularly frustrating to me. And, you know, I wish I had the answer uh, as to what needs to be done to get people to act right. Uh, but I don't know, because I've seen this over and over again. And yes, we can reach out to them. Yes, we can let them know that uh, their support would be appreciated and is needed. And quite frankly, uh, should, ha should have happened anyway without having to ask. Uh, but, but the reality is that it is, it is not as, it seems not to be as reflective uh, when that sort of support is coming towards us as our help is reflexive uh, when we reach out to other groups. 
Um, you know, maybe some of my sisters can come up with the answer to that question. And so it's the million dollar question. Uh, and maybe if we had that answer, we would, uh, you know, this whole issue of will we, you know, be the VP pick? Will we be able to retain the political power that we have now and even grow it? Wouldn't even be in question because God knows we deserve it. Right. So I will, uh, if does anybody else want to weigh in before I move on to our last topic? Okay, last question. Uh, I think we are, some of the folks who hopefully have joined us tonight may themselves be thinking about running for office. Um, and so, or putting themselves out there for a leadership position in an organization. I would add that to this conversation. So Leah, I'm gonna start with you and ask you, what is your advice to someone who is, you know, thinking about putting themselves uh, up for, to run for office? Uh, well, I think uh, a couple things. One, understand and be really clear about why you are running. What is your value system? What is the what is the what is it that you hope to accomplish? No one can explain it better than you. And if you can't explain it, you can't expect the voters or your team to uh, be able to come up with your plat with a platform that you don't have for yourself. So you got to be very clear about your value system, very clear about what you're hoping to accomplish. Should you be successful? Secondly, you've got to have a backbone of steel. <laughs> people don't just walk into office it, it there is a reason why it is so hard and why the obstacles are so many because power is what we're seeking in order to make changes for our people and for our communities nobody is going to just let you walk into city hall or walk into congress you're gonna have to fight for this so you gotta be prepared as my mother would say girdle up your loins get mm. some steel in your spine and be prepared for the fights that are going to come to you and some from some unexpected places right. be prepared for that and if you get you got to have your head on straight and be ready to walk into those battles and the last thing i'm going to say get your girls Whoever your girls are that are going to back you up, pump you up, stand you up, hold you up on the days when you are tired and when you can't remember why you're running, you need your girls with you that's going to say, come on, get it together, go in the bathroom, cry, let me get you some tissue, come out, we got stuff to do, let's go, we can do it. You got to have that team around you of women. For me, it's always been women who are like, come on, let's go. And if you got those three things, I think, you know, that doesn't guarantee you win, but you, at least you, your head is on straight and you got the mental game to, to win the fight. Oh, we need to play that for uh, thousands, <laughs> thousands of people. Right. right at the beginning at the decision point, uh, because- I'm ready to run, Leah. I'm ready to run. Right? <laughs> right. Come on. I mean, you're talking to- I ran for city council, you know, 12 Joking, joking, joking. <laughs> I remember city council 12, 13 years ago where, uh, you know, I didn't have that kind of speech. I didn't have that kind of network. I, I didn't go into any kind of training. I was, didn't go to, you know, higher heights train or anything. I didn't have a mentor. Um, it's painful. Um, it's painful. And the biggest uh, 
thing that I, now I'm in a position to help uh, women who, who want to run, women of color who are running, and um, I'm in a position to help. Uh, the biggest thing I say is 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 build your network. Um, when you say got your girls, that's the people who love you anyway, win or lose. Also build your network of, of people who will write you a check mm-hmm. and uh, people who will who will pump you up and 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 um, speak on your behalf. And that's been very um, helpful, I think, for people who now I see and I can for the benefit of experience of me running and losing all those years ago, I can say, okay, these are the things that will help you to get through the other side, um, ready to fight for the people. You know, can I, and I think the other thing that I, I'd say to a candidate, especially for women, let preparation be your friend. Because part of what, part of what happens with women when they enter into this process, they enter into the process as one person. By the time they're done, it's 15 or 20 people. And most of them, even in our campaigns, are white and male. So they lose a sense of themselves. They lose their voice. And once they lose their voice, they lose their compass. Once they lose their compass, they lose their race because you can no longer distinguish who they are. So, you know, I really do tell people, spend some time with yourself. You really, really have to know who you are when you decide to run for office. Because I think somebody said it, it is a tough, tough, tough business. There's probably a reason why none of us are in office right now. We'd rather (laughs) help you become that person. (laughs) I'm happy to help anybody do it. I'm just not going to do it. Right. But (laughs) but if you don't know yourself, and I tell you, that's almost the most crucial thing you can do for yourself, is spend some time with you. Because then your values won't be going. Because people really know when you're not authentic now. And you start putting the finger to the wind, that's when they're going to go to the next person. And it'll be easy for them to do it. And I think if you are thinking about running for office or you know somebody that's running for office, there are resources out there for women. And there are particularly a growing number of resources out there uniquely designed for Black women. Mm -hmm. And so I would just offer up five resources. Um, Obviously, I offer up Higher Heights for America um, in our webinar series, you can, there's research that we have done with the Center for American Women in Politics. So there's, bar- we know there's barriers of why, um, barriers in front of black women running for office. One of them is not only are we not encouraged to run for office, we are actually, actually actively discouraged from running for office. And oftentimes that means you may not even go to a physical training because it outs you to your community that you're thinking about running for office. So the Higher Heights training is a webinar opportunity where you can quietly be in your corner as you think through Um, if this is the path that you are meant to be on. There is Emerge. America has an an, an extensive um, 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 training program. The Yale Campaign School has a summer program. Um, The Black um, Black Campaign School by uh, Collective Pack is at four or five. Um, And Emily's List. So there are a variety of things where you can um, get the tools you need to be able to start putting together your kitchen cabinet, starting to put together your plan, and starting to put together your team. But you have to win the primary of self first, going back to what Reverend Daughtry said. Um, And it is something about being uniquely designed. Shirley Chisholm said once, um, you don't make progress whimpering and complaining on sidelines. You make progress by implementing ideas. And that is what we need for Black women's leadership in this moment. I just wanted to bring up money, 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 money. That at the end of the day, if you're running for office, you have money. And it doesn't necessarily, I think what we need also, I want to lift up, we need more PACs by Black women. That mm-hmm. We need more people to contribute to PACs like Black women. Mm-hmm. And other C4 organizations like Sister Lead, Sister Vote, 
we need to support the infrastructure that can also, because oftentimes we see these white candidates, it's not just them and their campaign. There's a whole nother infrastructure that is actually helping to push and mobilize that candidate and putting money in their campaign. And so we need to have more and develop more black packs in our community and our people. We've got to, we've got to support those packs as well. Cleola or Avis, final thoughts before we wrap up? Advice? I'm good. Now, I, was, I was quickly just say amen to amen, amen to everything that has been said. Um, but know that, you know, we we have shown over and over again that we are the engine behind getting other people in power. I think it's time that more of us take advantage of the opportunity to be the power. And that's what happens when we run and we win. And there's so many resources out here to help you. So definitely, I want to encourage my sisters to do that. I'm going to add one piece of advice of my own. It kind of goes with something that Mignon was saying. And that is, you know, when you have that kitchen cabinet have and those friends, have the two people, one or two people that you know will tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, too often times people, you know, are afraid to tell you the truth because they don't want to hurt your feelings. And, you know, this is a contact sport. If you're going to get into politics, you need to have people who will look you in the eye and tell you the truth uh, and know that it's, you know, you're, you're still friends or that you still have a relationship because you need those people around you. Um, well, it is 7.56, so Melanie, we are ending four minutes early because I think we were allowed to go to 8 o'clock, um, but I just want to thank this amazing panel. What, what a wonderful way to kick off this, this uh, power table series. So much wisdom and power, uh, and I'm looking forward to the, to the next panel, and um, just uh, thank you all for taking the time and being so generous with your time tonight as, as part of this, this inaugural event. Thank you. This is wonderful. I'm inspired. Thank you, Karen. Bye. Thank you, Clay, Latasha, uh, Glenda, uh, Bishop Leah, Dr. Avis, and Sister Mignon. Thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you for all y'all you all do. Every and day. you're awesome. Bye-bye. Uh, so Thank you gonna, so much. We're going to shift right on. If you want to hang in with us, join in. You know we all doing burning ten ends. So we're going to shift over to power table number two. And it is an uh, uh, awesome opportunity. I'm uh, going to serve as your moderator uh, for this uh, second panel. And this panel, uh, which I said is segment two, uh, is the topic is mobilizing and leveraging the power of the sister vote in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. And so my first honor is to introduce our power table sisters, uh, who will be uh, uh, leading us through this conversation. So, Monifa Bandelli, wave your hand if you're here. And she is the hey. vice president of hey. Arms Rising. Uh, we have Helen Butler, executive director, Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, and convener of the Georgia Black Women's Roundtable. Helen, Helen, thank you for joining us. Uh, and right here at home, my sister, our sister leader, Holly Holiday Esquire, National Unity 2020 Campaign Manager for the National Coalition. Thanks, Holly. Tamika Ramsey from the great state of Michigan, who is the convener of the Metro Detroit uh, Michigan Black Women's Roundtable and the Michigan Coalition on Black Civic Participation. And she also has time to be the executive uh, is a co-executive director to get the title of listening up a little bit. Michigan Voice. Thank you, Voices. Thank you, um, Tamika, for joining us. 
And then uh, we have our sister Ebony Rowley. Ebony, Ebony, there you go, Ebony. Ebony Rowley is the Washington Bureau Director, National Action Network, and a, a national partner. We're so glad for you able to be on the call. We know you're double duty right now. We go, 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 be on the call. And we got Deborah Scott. Executive Director Georgia Stand Up, who's one of our state state partners, and, 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 and all of us on this call are national leaders who just happen to live in states. PD Talley from the great state of Ohio, who's the convener of the Ohio Coalition on Black Civic Participation, uh, who recently decided she just was just uh, uh, didn't want to do triple duty, so she just recently uh, uh, transitioned from being the um, uh, Secretary of Treasury for Ohio AFL CIO. So our labor sister here uh, is now full-time retirement working in for one place and still uh, on the battlefield. So ladies, I'm gonna go straight into the conversation. We know our communities are being impacted by this coronavirus in, 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 in very challenging ways. Um, and we all have heard the data, but I just want to lift up the reality. And we right here with uh, Michigan on this call knowing that lots going on in Michigan. And what we know that a population of what, 15, 60% black folk, uh, uh, but yet 35% of the deaths for this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Illinois, 16% uh, of black population, 30% uh, death rate. Louisiana, third of the population is black, but yet we're 70% of the deaths. And the numbers go on and on and on. And so we know we have a lot uh, uh, at stake uh, in the midst of this pandemic and how important we know elections matter. If folks didn't know elections matter, they know now uh, as we struggle with um, leadership challenges from the highest level of office in this country and in many states as well. And so ladies, my first question to you uh, in, in framing that is um, how have you, all of you all are leading work uh, civic engagement and voter empowerment, uh, women's empowerment, so many other areas, economic uh, empowerment, so you have to do this work. Um, so how have Black women, how have Black women stepped up to lead in your community this fight to provi provide relief for our communities, for Black communities, uh, to, to survive you know, this coronavirus pandemic? So uh, why don't we start off, I'll start off with, um, I'll start off with Michigan. So Tamika, give us uh, uh, your thoughts on that. I think that's not Tamika. Yeah, there you go, Tamika. And make sure you take your phone off of mute. Did she hear me? That loser? All right, I'm gonna go straight to Helen because I don't think Hel Tamika heard me. So Helen, you will respond to that. And Georgia, we know lots going on, Georgia. Georgia, I'm gonna go to Helen and Deborah. Talk to us about Georgia. Well, Melanie, as you know, we've really been impacted by COVID-19 as well. And as Black women, we always take care of ourselves, our community, and everyone around us that we have. And you definitely have that going on here in Georgia, whether we are nurses providing the health care, whether we're just caregivers for our families, for our friends, for our neighbors, uh, we're taking a part in that. And there have been so many women providers like Elizabeth Olami, who's working with the homeless coalition. Make sure great. that our people uh, get 
their care and are cared for and can receive services that they need in this time. I look at just what we've done with the Black Women's Roundtable, partnering with Lyft to provide rides to people that will that need the essential services of just getting to the doctor, uh, getting to work for those low-wage workers who need that uh, opportunity to keep an income coming in so that they can pay the rent and everything else. I am fortunate to serve with Chairman uh, Rob Pitts at Fulton County and his advisory committee, where we just allocated $10 million to community organizations that will ensure that our communities of color, that the black women, black people are able to survive during this time period of time. So black women always lead and we're leading in this pandemic as well as we're leading in all other fronts. So it's really great to see all of the black women throughout the state down in Albany, Georgia, where we've had large deaths. Uh, we have our coordinator down there working with the community, Jeanette Lucas, who's there to help people really strive through these uh, serious times. Thank, thank you, Helen. Deborah, and then we're going to come to New York in a minute, uh, Monifa, because so, uh, we know a lot's going on in New York. So Deborah Scott, Georgia, stand up, Deb. Well, thank you, Mel, and thank you for um, having us. Um, and I share um, the sentiments with Helen, Black women have always held it down, and we're doing that. Um, and that's what we have to continue to do. Um, one of the first things that we had to do was first check on our people. So just, you know, the basic um, tenements of just calling your folks. So we took it to from calling our own folks, calling our own families and friends, but then, but then going back and calling everyone on our list that we, we touched to ask one, how are you doing? How, what do you need? What do you need for your family? And what we found that we needed to do was a COVID-19 resource guide so that we can connect people to the resources that are out there. So we called around to make sure that if someone said that they were really giving out food, we wanted to verify that they were really giving out food, food and what it took to get that food. Um, and then so we did that whole self-care piece first by calling our people, checking on them. But then we realized that there's a connection that this COVID-19 um, uh, virus has really allowed us to see that we have not been in the game in terms of technology. Some of us, we couldn't even do a Zoom call a month ago, right? And so we need to, needed to make sure our community leaders all around the, of the state and other places that are connected digitally. So do you have the proper phones, the computers, the technology that you needed? Uh, we were fortunate that we had opened up our phone bank where we have 75 phone, phone and we have the apparatus. And we have the ability to train them on how to do it at home. So we have phone bankers that are working from home. So we weren't, we did not have have to lay off people that were doing phone banking and we transitioned some of our voter registration people over to the phone bank so we had to make sure our technology was correct for our office and for our staff then we had to make sure our organizers were connected and then those phone calls are not only asking how are you doing how's mrs johnson doing how's your family doing but then are you registered to vote check and make sure right now if you're registered did you get your absentee ballot and then did you answer the census 
So we're using those wellness calls to touch our people and to make sure we reconnect the infrastructure that we've lost sometimes. We, we, we lose it when we're in the middle of, of, of just daily life. So this is telling us to slow down, stop, check on your folks, make sure your network and your infrastructure is together. And if what you don't have, tell us what it is you don't have and let's figure out how to make, make it happen. And so that also allows us to build a more connected system across the state, across these cities to say, well, we know Ms. Johnson over at this church is feeding, but over here, they're giving out rent um, support. And over here, they're making sure you're registered to vote. So under the guidance of um, Helen Butler and the People's Agenda and the Black Women's Roundtable, Stand Up is standing up with the rest of the state to figure out how Black women can make sure we not only control this election, but make sure our folks get out and get out to vote and make sure that we're not suppressed. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Helen. Uh, Monisa Vandelli from the great state of New York. New York. Uh, Mom's rising. And so we're going to lift you all up. We know so, you know, it's happening everywhere, but we know we see those numbers every day, every day uh, going on in New York. And, and uh, so, Monisa, so tell us what's happening and, and, and what's happening with Black women in, in your state. Absolutely. Any other uh, comments around, you know, what's going on with Black women's leadership? Yeah, with the coronavirus, because really on every level, state, local, and national, you see Black women standing, holding the line, and pushing forward for our communities. But we also see that locally. You know, one of the things I wanted to point out is that we've seen the racial disparity data coming out of New York City, where our communities, Black and Brown communities, have high mortality rates, much higher mortality rates from COVID-19. And that is partially because we're the ones on the front line, the essential workers interacting, making sure that people are getting everything from the food they need to the to what you need at the drugstore. You know, we're playing those roles, also healthcare. But also what we're looking at in New York City is that it, regardless of the type of work you're doing, our people who are uh, contracting the virus are Black people dying at higher rates than white people with the same, with otherwise the same demographic as far as the work that they're doing, their income level and their education level. And we're seeing that there's still a disparity there. So I wanted to point that out because I think that's going to be something very important to address. But where do we see the Black women leadership? I mean, you know, every day people tote how wonderful uh, Governor Cuomo is because really because his press conference comes after the White House press conference. But what people don't know is that in the New York State Legislature, there's black women like Latrice Walker holding his feet to the fire. You know, before he gets to make these announcements, there are black women that are saying, don't leave our communities out. Make sure you're not holding people in jails because they can't afford bail during this coronavirus. Wherever you see that type of advocacy, it's us. You know, and I, I, my heart goes out to Georgia. I'm glad we started with them because we're watching Georgia like, you know, what's, what's, what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, but what I see online are Black women also advocates throughout the state, just like here, saying, don't fall for it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You see all the memes and the messages. Um, but just quickly, I want to talk about on the national level, people, the, the, the people who are putting forth the recommendations and the policies that looks at what's happening with childcare, that looks at what's happening with essential workers, um, that's really uh, fighting for what's happening with our loved ones who are incarcerated over and over and over again, we see black women's leadership. So this election is critical 
um, coming up. But we have to make sure that we support the sisters now who are really putting their necks out. You know, state by state, you see them challenging these governors toe to toe. We see that in um, in Georgia and in New York. And they are, um, you know, it, they, they're, they're, people say they're making political suicide, but they're standing up for our communities to make sure that we live. So that's what's happening in New York. And I'll just close by saying within a five mile radius of me, you know, it's like five to 600 people a night dying right so there's the there's like the physical impact of this on black women but then there's also an emotional and mental health component that we should also talk about in this series because we're gonna have to hold each other up now and way beyond this thank you thank you monitha ebony riley ebony from national action network uh what's happening tell us we know you all national action network doing a lot a lot reverend sharpen and you all and black women that are right there beside him getting the work done every day. Uh, what's happening and what you're hearing about from black women, what's going on. And then who you will hear from, we're gonna shift over uh, um, and, and uh, start talking about, cause we're in this moment where we've got to really uh, mobilize this vote. Um, and I'll, I'll shift over to Petey Talley and, and Tamika and Holly uh, right after. So Ebony. So the black women we work with are focused on getting through this. Like we all here on the call so far with these beautiful activists on the front line that I have a pleasure to be on this chat with. A lot of our chapter leaders are black women who tap into their resources and beyond trying to protect us. And on a national level, we've been in conversations with the White House, members of Congress, the Treasury Department, and FEMA advocating for national policies to include our community. Um, at National Action Network, we also pushed for hazard pay for frontline workers, an expansion for small business loans for Black-owned businesses, and creating grants and black churches, uh, for Black churches and community organizations who are doing the heavy lifting. Um, on a local level, you know, we, our staff and our chapter leaders have been um, working on food distribution centers. Now we're in six cities. We're in Detroit, Michigan. We're in Miami, Florida. We're in Los Angeles, California. We're in Harlem, New York. We're in Newark and Irvington, New Jersey. And we started the third week of March with the food distribution. And now we're serving over 10,000 meals a week. And we're currently working on expanding more. So I'll just close by saying this. We don't need a definition on who's essential or non-essential. We know who's essential in our communities. And it's always, always has and always will be Black women. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ebony. Um, so Petey. Uh, P.D. Talley with the Ohio Coalition. Uh, we're going to start this conversation off. We know lots going on. Uh, you know, and, and, and elections matter. Um, it's not to say that it has to be a Democrat that, that's going to do the right thing. Because, and I'm not saying that your governor doing all things right, but he's standing up from what I can see from from a distance, uh, and not allowing party to to sh to 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 not take care of the people. And so I know you could give us some, uh, uh, um, we know there's some black women somewhere in that mix that's pushing that, whether they're Democrat or Republican, but also we know you all have an election on Tuesday, right, coming up. And yes. so how in this coronavirus pandemic that we're in, how are you all uh, uh, working to make sure that our folks are able to, to vote, to make sure that they're protected uh, in, the, in the midst of that and, that, and they can, uh, be able to find a way to do this in the safest way possible. Uh, so, Petey, tell us what's happening in, in the great state of Ohio. 
first of all, Melanie, let me thank you and your team for putting on this wonderful panel conversation. I enjoyed the first panel. This panel is even um, as powerful. And let me um, just say a word about our governor. We do appreciate uh, Governor DeWine and the steps that he's taken to protect us and make sure that we're okay. Uh, we think he's leading um, in a way that makes us proud. Um, and so we applaud his efforts. Um, but he did something that kind of threw us off a little bit about a month ago when he made the decision at the 11th hour to not allow for in-person voting on the last day of the primary election. He closed the polls at about 10 o'clock p.m. after he lost the lawsuit uh, that said he had to have the polls open. And he went around 10 o'clock at night and had his health director to order all polling locations closed, which left millions of voters kind of hanging in the balance who would have gone to the polls and voted on Tuesday, March 17th, um, not knowing what was going to be the state of their uh, franchisement. Um, and so we have a whole story to tell about that. But before I do that, Melanie, let me just answer your first question, tell you what some of the Black women in the state are doing um, in terms of the COVID piece. Uh, so a lot of Black women uh, in our state, and particularly in my community, they've gotten out their sewing machines and they're, they've been making masks. Mm -hmm. uh, first, they made masks for first responders and for you know healthcare providers. But the demand has gotten so great that they began making and selling at cost masks to the general public because the public has been advised that if they must go outside, they should have a face covering. So uh, the entrepreneurial spirit of Black women has risen um, somewhat through this crisis, and um, they are actually putting their talents to work to make sure people are safe. Uh, we've got some Black women in Cleveland that are working with churches and schools and senior sitters and um, to feed the community and to provide the supplies that are needed, whether it's toilet paper, or disinfectant, or Lysol, whatever is needed. Um, they are there um, coming out of their homes um, to make sure that our uh, vulnerable communities have the things that they need. In Youngstown, Ohio, some of uh, some, and these are Black Women's Roundtable sisters who have um, been in our presence um, and, and are doing this work. Um, they're staffing sta uh, grab-and-go stations where students are picking up meals and school supplies in Youngstown. And, they, and a lot of them are doing this work while they're keeping up with their own everyday work assignments because just because you're at home does not necessarily mean that you um, are not working. So they're doing their work job and they're also clocking hours uh, to maintain uh, an eye on the community. Um, and it's been um, quite interesting, but um, around the election, what we did, we got together and we found a way to help our community get their vote back and, right. and raise their voice in our democracy by um, stepping in and providing a way for voters who have never voted by mail to understand what the vote by mail system is and to participate in a way, hopefully that is meaningful. And I'll tell you, uh, maybe in the uh, second phase of question, I can go a little bit more in depth um, around specifically what uh, the Ohio coalition has done and it's been impactful. It's been recognized by the Secretary of State as one of the most robust programs across the state to help voters uh, get their voice in this primary election. Thank you, Petey. Uh, Tamika. 
Um, Michigan, you know, uh, we've been watching uh, from a distance uh, all the protests that have been taken care and not big crowds, but small crowds that, that folks keep putting them on national news uh, who say they ready to go, ready for the state to open. So I know you all have had your election, um, but I wanted to see what was happening with what were black women, how are black women handling a lot of this? Because we know the numbers are high in Michigan when it comes to the coronavirus uh, death rate uh, in Ohio. And, and as you try to do things like get, we got to get out the vote, not just the vote, but we got to get the uh, counted in the census. So the work is still continuing in the midst of that. So what are black women, how are you all handling that? Uh, and then after you, uh, Tamika, Holly, I'll be coming to you next to talk about what's happening from, from our end here in the great nation's capital. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much. Um, and so in Michigan, we um, unfortunately had um, a, the death of a five-year-old young lady um, who parents were both first responders. Um, the protest happened and it, and it was just so much white supremacy and white privilege. We have elected officials at our Capitol saying that urban centers should be shut down and rural areas should be allowed to move across the state. So yeah. we see the divide in race already in our state um, and it's just expanding. Detroit has the highest death rate in this in the state um, for the coronavirus. And so we are working to make sure one, because like someone said, most of the essential workers are people of color. Both my son and my daughter-in-law work at grocery stores. They have a one-year-old son. Right. They have to go to work every single day and come home with the apprehension that they could be bringing something home to their child. We have a lot of people dealing with that. We have two, it, it was a first responder, um, a, a EMS and a nurse who lost their five-year-old daughter who now are trying to figure out, did they bring it home? Were they asymptomatic and brought it home to their child? So we are dealing with that um, and making sure at the same time, right, that the census numbers are counted. All urban cities in our in our state are 10% down on the census count from 10 years ago. And we know it's because we don't have people knocking at the door. We know that it's because we are trying to make sure that people have food and they have personal hygiene products. And so what we have done with Black Women's Roundtable Eastern Michigan is working with our partners where as they're doing food delivery, we're asking about census. We have tablets and masks and gloves and we're screaming to people to get them to fill out their census during the food distribution. We are making sure that we're talking about basic quality of life issues while looking at are you registered to vote. Georgia Stand Up is doing an amazing job and I think a lot of states and organizations are following their lead. Um, one of the things that Black women are doing, and Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence is doing an amazing job. So many Black women own small businesses that are be, that were left out of the CARES Act, the last round of small business of funding, that have been left out of so many of the funding processes that they are now trying to figure out how they're going to be sustainable and take care of their families. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence has done an amazing job of speaking up for those small businesses, but not only that, getting on calls and finding resources 
resources to help them fill out applications. We've seen that some of these bigger companies are filling them out because they have resources. They have HR departments. Most of them are franchises. Um, and we have small business owner women who are sewing by hand or, or in their basement or providing food uh, for their city that don't have those same resources. So we just need to make sure as we go forward and we're looking at all aspects of Black women that we are taking care of their health. We have women who are choosing to give birth for the first time at home because they're scared to go into hospitals. We need to make sure that we are looking at the full and complete life of a Black woman and taking care of all aspects as we move forward through this uh, crisis. Um, thank you, Tamika. And we all, and we all know uh, that the, the mortality rate when it comes to uh, um, you know, mothers and, and, and birth, and we already have a bad bad numbers as it is. So it, yeah. it, it's a it's a lot coming at us. But this too, we will we will we will be victorious. Uh, but we we have no choice. But we gotta fight, keep fighting, and keep fighting. Um, so thank you, Tamika. Um, Holly, Holly Holiday. Um, we're here uh, in the, uh, the Washington D.C. metro area. Uh, so before I get into the politics of, um, uh, of dealing with the electoral, um, also uh, we know there's a lot going on. Black women are doing here right in this area to keep. So you can you kind of put that other hat on, you know, that you know you're out in the community. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, let me first say how black women are handling uh, our region and being yeah, absolutely balanced to make sure that, that the disparities uh, for us um, in the area. Uh, in this area that we, we, we try to survive in, in uh, this, this pandemic. Absolutely. Let me first start by saying, as what has been reflected on this powerful panel, it takes all of us doing a little bit. And really, it takes all of us doing a lot. Um, and that's what we're seeing here in the nation's capital, in the capital region, and that's what we're seeing in all of these states. It's not a one-person job. It's not a one-organization job. This is a job where Black women are banding together, working together to fill the needs that they see in their community. Um, you all have mentioned some of the things in terms of food service. <clears throat> I'm going to focus on um, something that we find incredibly important, and that is mental health. Um, that you've seen an increase in the amount of services um, where people are be, being able to access mental health services, um, transitioning from being at home, being in isolation, <coughs> um, working through and dealing with intensified problems that were already happening at home and being trapped in the home. Um, we're now seeing um, some of the domestic violence programs being expanded to reach out to women who are now trapped at home with their abusers. Um, we've seen, um, I happen to live in the state of Maryland and we have something called the Family Justice Center here and they've expanded their services and made them more available virtually and through no contact mechanisms, which are lifelines for women you know, struggling with mental health and also just struggling with the depression and the overwhelming feeling of how do we make it through the day. Um, and of course, we're also doing the, the food bank and the food insecurities are huge here as well. Um, Prince George's County actually <coughs> has seen the biggest jump in unemployment in one single month than we've seen in 25 years. Um, and even though we uh, are supposedly the 
county of the richest African-Americans in the country. Um, like many things that happen in our community, we live in a dichotomy. And um, despite the fact that we have that wealth, we find we really are just one or two paychecks away. Um, and so the food insecurity piece is real. Our county executive in Prince George's County has actually uh, declared it a state of food emergency and has begun looking for resources that the state can be a part of feeding each other. So I would say, you know, those are some of the things we're looking at. And we've been fortunate to also, I mean, this do two thing, um, we got that going on. We have an election June 2nd, as many other states will be. Um, that's our new election day. And at the same time, pushing the census. And we're using our social service outreach as a way to also talk about these issues as well. I almost think this should say do 15, because uh, we're doing about 15 different things. Um, but that's some of the things that are happening in the nation's capital. Thank you, Holly. Ladies, we have three minutes uh, before we have to close out. So I'm going to ask you to, say, to, to talk to the audience that's out there. Uh, well, before I get there, I just want to thank in Roland Martin Unfiltered for partnering with us on this uh, inaugural Power Table talk series uh, that will continue. Uh, and so we thank you all for joining uh, this first one. But just what the, the sister that's out there, you know, what's the one thing you want to, to let them know uh, to, to do? Uh, will it be about you know, how to, to deal with this coronavirus pandemic, uh, how to make sure that they're able to, to vote? Uh, what can they do? And, and then, and then, lastly, kind of, how can they um, uh, make sure that their vote is counted in twenty twenty? So, just come at it, rapid, rapid response. Hey, Melanie, this is PD in Ohio. We have an election coming up on Tuesday, April 28th. If you're in the state of Ohio and you have not completed your ballot and mailed it in or turned it in, we encourage you to do that before April the 28th. That is the deadline if you intend to vote in Ohio's primary election. So please vote by mail and vote today. Right. I want to say, Melanie... I want to shout out to our mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, to the mayor of Albany and uh, Savannah for standing up and saying, stay inside, shelter in place, be safe, but vote. Uh, we want you to do both. Uh, vote by mail. Don't believe the myths that it's a fraud involved. There isn't. We've been voting, voting by decades, uh, but vote by mail. So it is safe. We're here to protect you. We have a group of people, election monitors, that will assist you with 866-R-VOTE if you have a problem. So do vote and be counted. We've done a, a tour, of census tour with uh, Killer Mike, and we're telling you to be counted. Do too. Yeah. Vote and be counted. Thank you, Helen. Uh, this is in Michigan. Um, I think it's important. We say trust black women, follow black women, black women lead. Black women need to start trusting themselves more. Black women need to understand that we are powerful, we are educated, and we have been leading this country for centuries. And so it, it's only right for us to start doing that in elected positions at the federal level. Okay, great. I, this is Monifa. My message to sisters out there is that you are enough. Um, don't be gaslit by people like the Surgeon General saying that Black communities need to step up and, and stop doing this, that, and the other. We are doing it. We need to support each other and not be confused by those who wish um, they had the power and the resilience that, we, that you have. You are enough. 
Deborah. Okay, my message would be one, if you know, trust and verify, right? So if you think you're registered to vote, make sure you're registered to vote, check that registration, get that absentee ballot, make sure your family um, is counted in the 2020 census, and then really stand up and make sure people are taken care of and make sure they vote. We, this is a time for us to, to stay together and to work together. I love these kind of um, conversations we have at the Black Women's Roundtable because it really shows the power of Black women working together. And now, you know, from, from organizing from college, we have to pass this on. So I'm so excited about the young people that are coming behind us. We have some young organizers that are doing some amazing things. We have to continue to work together and trust each other and to teach each other because, you know, the power is in our hands. It's up to us once again. Thank you. Thank you. Ebony, uh, Holly, last words? Yep. I would just say that um, echoing all the other sisters on the call, check in with your state to make sure that you can get a request, have to request a, a mail-in ballot. Some states you have to request it. So call, call your board of elections and just double check to make sure, make sure that you're on the docket as well. Make sure your family is, make sure you do your census that's coming up. We have three more months, but we don't want to waste waste time and wait. Let's go ahead and reach out to extra people now that we have more time. Um, if you need any um, more information, you can reach out to us. Um, if, the, if you want to help volunteer, um, visit nationalactionnetwork.net. We're also having a virtual town hall this Sunday to talk about all of these issues under the coronavirus, and you can register for free on our website. Um, and it's also the last thing for me. I started off as a volunteer. If you see a need in your community, uh, figure out how to fill it because you can do it. You don't need any titles, any education. You can figure out the solution to any problem and fill that need. Start one step at a time. Thank you. Holly? Well, I can't leave without saying that we just need to remember to do two, vote and be counted in 2020. Um, we have um, links to all of the partners that you see on this on this call as well as the one before at our unitycampaign.org site. And then I would also just end with, just like we're not alone at this power table, black women, you are not alone. Reach out to your church, your sister friends, and if you can't find any of them, just reach out to your neighbor because you are not alone in this and together we will get through it. So be encouraged. Thank you, thank you. Thank you ladies for joining our Black Women's Roundtable inaugural. Power Table series, and we and uh, stay stay safe. Uh, thank you for all of your leadership. Again, thank you, and thank you for uh, all of the ladies of the first panel uh, who were who on. And uh, stay tuned for the conversation to continue. So, um, thank you again, uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered, for the partnership, and we appreciate you, Ro. And uh, let's just just stay safe. And thank you again, ladies, and thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Mel. Thank you. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Oh. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.